Howdy, everybody. Welcome to another of our apparently bi-weekly movie journals. I think they'll go back to more normal. Um, In February, probably. Because <laughs> I'm going to be out of town. That's right. That. We're going to take... It's going to be more than two weeks before our next one. Yeah. Um, in case you didn't know, I'm David Bax. Uh, I'm Tyler Smith. Uh, and you know what? Let's get right to it. And I'll yeah. tell you why. Because I got a ton of shit. Do um, you? All right. Yeah, well, we, we were I, I have a, more than I usually do. We were in such a rush last week or last time we did one of these because mm-hmm. you had a hard out that there was stuff that i didn't even talk about right. that i want to get to so here's i'm gonna i'm gonna do the opposite of what i normally do i'm gonna do tv first real quick because there's some oh tv oh, some shit. there's some pre-christmas okay. tv stuff and, and christmas tv stuff okay. that i want to catch up on first and foremost we haven't talked about the end of the amazing race at all yeah um which i really enjoyed i talked about it on hey watch this with paul yeah he also really enjoyed it um uh, how did you feel uh i like the team i like the team that won you know on I, grew, I grew to like them over the course of the season <laughs> yeah they're they're kind of delightful um it, it's one of those things that i know and you one and of I, them i believe is from st louis which i well there is usually right. enough to get a rooting interest out of me uh and i don't uh you know you and i've had this conversation before that like you know it's not necessarily about the strongest team or the best team it often is uh, yeah, yeah, you know, like the hockey certain. players and stuff like that. But, but sometimes it's just all right. Does the last leg, you know, d- who who does well at the last leg? That's ultimately what it comes down to. And you know, and they will. They, I feel like they tend to have, um, you know, roadblocks and stuff um, that are not purely physical. Uh, often they're mental. They're, and uh, mm-hmm. so I feel like the scientists were sort of predisposed to being good at that. Yeah. Um, yeah. If it was physical, then either of the uh, either of the uh, the two remaining teams would have done better mm-hmm. um i was rooting for the surfers um i like sure. them a lot um i really enjoyed the little moment where because they're in los angeles and they go to a, a a fire station to get some directions oh yeah, yeah and then the guy's like hey are you bethany hamilton my daughter's a big fan <laughs> and she's like oh that's great i'm sorry i, I have to go <laughs> you know and i just <laughs> and i'm sure in that moment she would have probably been very gracious but it's yeah. like it's nothing about this situation allows that yeah but uh but that's yeah funny. it was it was uh it was good uh now i don't know if this has been announced or i'm aware of it because they said it um at the survivor finale but um did you know that Amazing Race is going to follow Survivor on Wednesday nights starting? Oh in no, February? I didn't know that. Yeah, I know. Well, I guess I know it comes back February twenty fifth, and I guess I could have looked at what day of the week that is. Okay. Um, but uh, no, I didn't know that. I'm really intrigued for the next season for this I mean, idea. I'm intrigued. It might. So I, not for those go who great. don't know, because you're right now just gritting your teeth and waiting for us to get to movie yeah. talk because we're opening with Amazing Race, which is not what we usually do. Yeah, not only is it TV, but it's <laughs> a reality competition. Um, but the next season is going to be all couples. Yeah. But it's also going to have this element that some of the couples will be, it's it's like a dating show. Like they're meeting for the first time and running the race together because, I don't know, eHarmony or whatever placed them together. I don't know. I'm sure it'll be tied to something like that. Equally yoked.com maybe is <laughs> <laughs> placed them together. Um, see, everybody else goes for J date or farmers only as their like comedy, like dating site go to. I'm all about equally yoked oh, and have been for more than a decade. Yeah. Um, I don't even know if that exists anymore. It's probably been replaced by Christian mingle. Oh, that's but, too bad. Uh, that's too bad. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, I'm really intrigued to see how it plays out because right now I'll tell you why. Cause I'm not like someone, this is what 
the we've talked before the reason i like the amazing race more than survivor is i like to see people do well and have fun and be nice mm-hmm. like for some reason and so i'm not watch. i'm not looking forward to these pairings being like oh i hope we see some fireworks in a bad way i'm hoping they fall in love that's really what i'm hoping well and that's the thing is that like couples on amazing race are often my least favorite thing it's one of the things that one of the reasons that i like the surfers is that they are recently married and i think and maybe because of their jobs and maybe bethany hamilton's life um uh-huh. they are willing they're, they're better able to deal with stress and they wind up just affirming each other and that sort of thing so it was really nice to watch even the dentist that i weren't a bit i wasn't necessarily a big fan of they were good to each other but there are some couples that basically break up as a result of being on the amazing race or should that, should, break, or or should, should break up if yeah. they don't but, uh, I, but I, that I level like, that level of tension it's like i i hate to put it this way i'm already married yeah. You know, I, I know what you mean. I, I don't like, <laughs> I don't like arguing, you know, I can barely stand to argue with the woman that I love more than anything else in the world. These are strangers that I, and a whole season of them, yeah. everybody. Yeah. I tend to like, I, I tend to like this, the, uh, the teams that are friends, like two buddies. Right. Justin I like and that. Zev. I don't remember who. Oh yeah. Yeah. They were great. That's right. They were uh, twice. The, the Chippendales. I like them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I, I guess. Amazing Race just, I, I can be a pretty pessimistic person, but Amazing Race brings out the humanist, optimistic part of me. And I really just am hoping we see a lot of great, great couples like uh, Joyce and Yuchenna or. Yeah, I liked them. Or or Bethany and uh, Adam, was that his Adam, name? Adam, yeah. Um, and I, you know, I think like even this season, the, rest, the wrestlers, like they bickered, but I didn't ever worry for their relationship. No, you know not I mean? at all. Like that seemed to be just part of their identity. They would bicker and then be over it immediately. Like it wasn't a big deal. And you know, it's, they, they were actually, you know, they were never going to win. Um, and they weren't remarkably bright, but they were, I mean, they're professional wrestlers and thus there's a showmanship to them. Yeah. They were always fun to watch. Yeah, they're always very entertaining. I liked them a lot. I wouldn't be all surprised right. if they, uh, bring them back um let's moving on to another another season of tv that ended is the birthday boys um okay. which uh i you should watch i mean you'd have to i haven't seen a single yeah. you have to pay for it like i do because i no longer have i downgraded my cable package i no longer have ifc right. so i buy it from amazon um amazon instant video yeah. aiv for short um but this season really like i'm always worried about sketch shows like especially when sketch groups have like been together a long time mm-hmm. right I don't know what you're looking at. I'm looking at the time. Oh, we're barely into this at all. I know. Um, you think, like, okay, these guys, like, the birthday boys have been performing on stage for years, mm-hmm. you know? So are they going to, like, blow all their, like, you know, well-honed sketches and ideas the first season? And then they've had years to come up with this first stuff, and now yeah. they have nine months to come up with an entire second season. There's always that fear with this sort of thing. Interesting. Um, and I don't think the second season of birthday boys was ever bad. I think it started a little, it stumbled out of the gate a little bit. Um, but I think, I know this is a lofty comparison, but I think you'll find the kids in the hall sort of found the same thing. Like the first season, they used all these classic sketches and the second season, they found their way into being, okay, now we are more of a televised, you know, sketch show that involves Mm -hmm. filmmaking of a certain sort. You know what I mean? Yes. Uh, and just sort of had to re- re-identify themselves. And I see you. I think you can, when you watch the second season of The Birthday Boys, you can really s- see them finding uh, what their identity is now that they're a multi-season sketch show. I hope it comes yeah. back for a third. 
um, the final episode had an extended um, riff on the opening song from Beauty and the Beast, which is about how she oh, likes yes, yes. she likes books, essentially, right? That's essentially yeah. the idea of the song of Beauty and the Beast. Yeah. She, she likes books, and the townspeople are like, she just needs to grow up and get married, right? Something like that, and yeah. And so one guy, just because he happened to buy Hulk Hogan's autobiography... <laughs> <laughs> and is obsessed with it. His friends call him a bookworm, and he's like, "I am." And so there's this, this huge musical number, except he's clearly just making up the words the whole time. So there's like no melody. He's jumping around this like play like playground. They're like at a school, and he's just singing, ma- making up words about liking books. Get, give me a big old papery book is something he says at one point. <laughs> and then, getting more specific about being the beast, he passes a line of bakeries where i think in beating the beast it's like there's the baker and yeah, like yeah. the whatever else the, the candlestick maker there whatever go, there goes the baker with his tray like always okay but in here he just passes three different bakers <laughs> and they all stick their head out and say some variation of when's that boy's dad gonna marry him off <laughs> um and that was one of the highlights of the episode in the season but Seems uh marvelous yeah, Birthday Boys has really, uh, really come into its own. And then the final TV thing I want to talk about. Now, have you watched, now that it's available on Netflix, have you watched any of Black Mirror? Uh, I started getting into knowing what the first episode is about. Yeah. Uh, I started getting into it, and then I realized, uh, oh, this is the way in which I was watching it. It was like having it on while I was working. It's right. like, that's not the way to watch this. Yeah. I'm going to need to pay attention to it. Partially because the, I forget his name, but the uh, Rory something. Is it Rory? Who plays uh, the Prime Minister. Okay. Um, I like that actor a lot. Uh, he was in Imitation Game. He was in Skyfall. Um, oh, he is in Imitation Game. Yeah, he's the detective. Yeah, that's right. And so... I didn't um, put two and two together. So, yeah, uh, I realized... And also Lindsay Duncan is in the first uh, episode. She's like one of have the... I advi- s- have I seen her yet? She's one of the advisors to the Prime Minister. Okay, so yeah, then, then I'm sure sh- I have. Okay. And uh, this has been a... For me, in my opinion, has been a great year for her. Um, well, as this... As far as performances. Black Mirror is... It's coming from like the Netflix this year, old. but it's like it's like from 2011 or yeah. whatever. Um, but no, so I, I started watching it, and I, I feel like I'm going to love it, but no. I love that that's the first episode, too, because it's in many ways it's dissimilar mm-hmm. to the rest of the series. But I love that they make, like, this is like the litmus test to get yeah. through. And so I won't go get into it, but yeah, get through the first episode, uh, and you'll <laughs> maybe you'll like it. But um, they did a Christmas special. Yes. Um, a standalone Christmas special. I don't think it's available on Netflix. It was only available in the U.S. to DirecTV customers, which I still am, because um, DirecTV has their own channel called Audi- <laughs> Audience. Anyway, um, and it was a, so this was a feature length, a 90 minute, mm-hmm. no commercials, 90 minute um, Black Mirror episode starring John Hamm and Rafe Spall. You know him? Oh, yeah, yeah. From uh, Life of Pi is what I know him, think of yes. him from first and foremost. Yes. Uh, and I thought it was fantastic. I, it's so hard to go into Black Mirror episodes. I never want to. But this was like the best Black Mirror episodes. Um, you spend a lot of time going, how did they come up with that? That seems it's like it's so imaginative. Yeah. And it also seems so believable that we would get technology wise from here to there. Yeah. Um, and also it's realized in a way that like the special effects on Black Mirror are with a couple of exceptions, not usually like, uh, you know, it's not like you're not drowning in visual effects, yeah. but they're really, really smartly used. So you spend 
most of the the episode of this uh it was called white christmas black mirror white christmas that's i guess the way it looks <laughs> i think yeah. that was intentional to have it display that way um you spend most of it being like this is you know incredibly inventive and this is a great story by the end then it's it, 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 like the best black mirror episodes at the end you're like oof like i'm gonna put a fucking gun in my mouth <laughs> it's so depressing uh so if that's what you like out of television I don't know. I do. I don't know when Black Mirror. I don't know when White Christmas will, if it will come to Netflix like the other two series have. But uh, that's mostly it for TV. Um, I I haven't watched Empire yet. That's the new uh, new show of the uh, of the season that I'm most excited for. Uh, So hopefully next time we do one of these, I'll have watched it. Uh, I rewatched the entire series. uh, Sorry, first season of uh, BoJack Horseman, including the uh, Christmas special. Uh, Bojack Horseman is not a perfect show. I wouldn't even go so far as to say it's a great show. It has great moments in it. Okay. Uh, there are performances that are great, including friend of the show, Paul F. Tompkins. Um, Aaron Paul is a lot of fun. Uh, and <clears throat> playing a former partner of Bojack is uh, Stanley Tucci. And the character's name is Herb Kazaz. And uh, he is a producer of television shows. And so anytime it shows uh, horsing around... Which is uh, BoJack's? Uh, I watched sitcom. the Christmas special. Yeah, it's not great. I it didn't has, like the Christmas special. It has, its, mo- it has its moments, but there's not a lot of them. And so, but at the end, every time it shows the end of Horsing Around, there it cuts to like like the the official logo of Herb Kazaz Productions, uh-huh. and then it's so it shows him, uh, and you hear Stanley Tucci go say, uh, "It's a Kazaztrophy," <laughs> and it's so. For some reason, I laugh so uproariously every time, partially because. Um, <clears throat> I think uh, so. Jen and I recently rewatched um, the second Hunger Games, and I think I've come to realize that Stanley Tucci might be one of the most underrated and talented actors to ever be on screen, because uh, he can play. <coughs> excuse me. He can play drama. He can play uh, creepiness, um, and he can be remarkably funny. It's and often within the same within the same performance. It's re- like he's wonderful. And I feel like he's, he's had some roles here and there that people remember him for. But like, I feel like, um, we said, we, t- I talked about this with, uh, Todd Vanderwerf that, uh, much as I love Steve Buscemi on boardwalk empire, I feel like he just doesn't quite capture the essence of that character. And I thought somebody like a Stanley Tucci would be perfect. Somebody who does seem like mm-hmm. they could, like he could be, a credible, frightening gangster, which we did see him in uh, Road, Road to Perdition, Perdition yeah. but then could also be uh, a respectable politician. And so I feel like it's just a matter of time before he gets – of course, people know who he is. They, yeah. pro- they probably even know the name. So From it's not the like, Transformers movies. Is he in the Transformers movies? I think he's in at least one of them, I'm pretty sure. Um, but uh, But yeah, like – I keep saying like, oh, uh, you know, when his ship comes in, he's been nominated for an Oscar. Everybody knows who he is, at least by sight. And they probably know him by name as well. But I feel like he hasn't yet had the defining role of his career. Um, So I'm excited for that. Uh, And then also, you know, uh, I'm sure at some point in the future, uh, I will stop either watching Gotham or or <laughs> complaining about it. It's so frustrating <laughs> to see like all the elements are there. 
You know what I mean? It's like somebody is baking a cake and they, but they just put all the things in one bowl and stir them together. It's like, no, you need to do this in a specific order. Actually. (laughs) Um, the, the actors are all there. The it's the art direction. Like Gotham looks great. Um, the tone is really good. And even, even some of the stories and character arcs work, but it's just the writing isn't it just, I can't, you know, I, I, I used to do, uh, script coverage and and stuff for a, a I was about to, low level is not the same as low life uh, a low level producer and um and so you know you kind of get used to saying like okay here's the here are the problems with the script if the if if they do this then they've solved a big problem I can't even really put my finger anymore I can't really put my finger on what Gotham is doing wrong as far as the writing I mean all I all I really can say is just like be better uh-huh write better the dialogue is a big problem but uh it's just it's so frustrating to just see all the elements on the screen but just not in the right concoction it's very frustrating um but i'm gonna keep watching because maybe season two uh yeah maybe it'll get better yeah i've I've done that with certain shows and we talked about with terrence last week we talked about nashville it's paid off (laughs) Nashville found its way in a weird way, but it found its way. All right. I'm going to jump through a few more movies because I have more than you. Okay. Um, now, the first one. Oh, I forgot. Oh, TV wise. I also watched the first season of The Wonder Years, um, which I hadn't seen since I was younger than Kevin Arnold. <laughs> and now I'm much, much older than he is. And it was a uh, the first season was only six episodes. And it's fantastic. Yeah. The show so understood itself now so quickly. It's I fantastic. know for a long time there was an issue with like music rights. No, and stuff. I, they, is that still. No, the, the music okay. is there. OK, great. Um, OK, but on to movies. Now, I generally don't. I generally try to keep the movie journals to stuff that I'm seeing for the first time because I rewatch movies from time to time. I don't need to mm-hmm. talk about all that. But there's, I, I watched a movie that I hadn't seen in so long that it's almost like a first watch. Okay. Uh, I watched uh, John Landis' Trading Places. Oh, all right. And when was the last time you saw it? It's been a long time. It's been well over 10 years, maybe 15. Okay. Well, it's great. Mm-hmm. It's so great. I know that it's is hilarious. I, that is usually like Matt Belknap's selection is like the best comedy ever. I, it's got to be up there. It's great. But it got me and it, like, I mean, we, you know, because of like a lot of the, his later career choices, like Jim Belushi is not thought of as a very funny guy right. now, but in trading places, he's so funny. He's like there, they have, the, there's the, the whole the, like third act of the movie. I think I had forgotten about a lot of people forget about they're on a train, you know, with uh, um, uh, who's the bad guy in it? Uh, Paul Gleason. Um, is that his name? Well, it's the guy from. Uh, sorry, when I, I think of uh, Don Amici. No, no, um, but, but like, the, the actual other, yeah, yeah. The heavy. Yeah, yeah, is right. That's who it is from uh, Breakfast Club. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. yeah, Paul Gleason. Um, they're on a train where they're trying to. They're dressed up like. <laughs> well, I'll get to. I'll get to this. I'll get to that. Um, but it's a New Year's Eve party on a, an Amtrak train from Baltimore mm-hmm. to Philadelphia. I don't know if this is a real thing that happens. Yeah, but it's that's the setting. And Jim Belushi is dressed as a gorilla the whole time. <laughs> that's right. And he gets knocked out because when they knock out Paul Gleason, that's they right. dress him as a him as a gorilla. So Jim Belushi's response to coming to in his underwear no longer in his gorilla suit is to jump back onto the party car and go hey everybody look what happened to me (laughs) (laughs) it's among the funniest lines of the movie um but anyway what i want to talk about is the idea you know when a lot of times especially with comedy when we watch a movie that we haven't seen in a long time we talk about whether or not it holds up quote unquote holds up and 
trading places, I don't know if holds up is the right word because it is impossible to you have to see it in the you have to understand the context of the time because it's impossible to escape just how on pc so much of it is oh i'm sure in ways that i mean in some ways that i think are really daring and fantastic you know yeah. i don't think you could have uh i think i don't think in a comedy you could have don amici's character being like overtly racist now you know because it's like he's he is a villain you but can... he's but he's he's not villainous like he's not I, I feel like the the tendency now would, would be to paint him completely villainous in order to make him racist. Yeah, yeah. But he's Don Amici's character is actually kind of gentle and kind of pleasant a lot of the time. You know, he's a pleasant yeah. personality, but he's just sort of casually racist in an ingrained way. Yeah. Because of probably his age and his social standing. Yeah. Um. And then, um. And then eventually he does break. It, when his brother's like having a heart attack and he, oh, the only thing he cares about is them getting their money back. And yeah. he says, fuck him into the paramedic. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, it was, I had forgotten that Donnie Michi says fuck him in the movie, which is yeah. very funny about, but, uh, I believe Ralph Bellamy, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's who it is. Who is in, uh, the Wolfman um, and a lot of other stuff. I oh. mean, he's, it's so interesting when you see actors in like modern things yeah. that are, were in iconic films yeah. from the forties and thirties. And I love, this is the right kind of on PC. Like I love that Ralph Bellamy is painted as the more liberal progressive humanist of the two mm. until it comes to their money actually being threatened. And then that all goes out the window. Yeah. You know? Um, but the movie is also on PC in ways that wouldn't hold up today. You know, um, Eddie Murphy is initially, um, convinced that these two guys are, tr- you know, they're they're trying to fuck him essentially. Oh, okay. <laughs> not not fuck him over, but yeah. he thinks they're this is a come on of some sort. Yeah, and he uses the the f word oh, okay. more than once yeah. to talk about them in a way that is not you know just casual. But then also on the train when yeah, they're for all a character that's going to be uh, our hero. That yeah. is that wouldn't happen yes. anymore. Um, but also on the train at the end, they're all in different disguises. Dan Aykroyd is in blackface. I That's had right. completely forgotten about it. He walks into the train talking with a really bad Jamaican accent. That's right. In blackface. And he's got the, the, the wig. He's got <laughs> yeah, like yeah. a dreadlock. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. yeah that, that, that wouldn't happen now. So I don't know if the word holds up, if the term holds up is the right way to describe trading places. But I will say it is even fucking funnier than I remembered from seeing. I mean, I was a kid last time I saw it. Uh, it's so great i want to make it a, a christmas tradition because it is a christmas new year's movie i want to make it a christmas tradition to rewatch trading places it's up there with die hard you know i wonder so you know the concept of of blackface being uh, offensive and in a context like that where he's doing uh, the jamaican accent is a it's we we know it's bad we all know it's <laughs> right, bad yeah. we know this disguise <laughs> is bad this guy this guy could, like he couldn't be less the thing he is disguised as, uh-huh. and so I I wonder if like I mean people they say blackface and they immediately think like oh it's the most racist thing ever it's like yes but if, if it's done self consciously if the humor is that this guy should never for any he could he could go by almost anything else and he'd be more believable uh-huh. but this is this was the choice right I feel like that's a more acceptable that to me is a more acceptable use of. Uh, I think that's an acceptable use of blackface. I think people. I, I, I still don't think people, it would happen today. I don't think it would happen today. Yeah. Like if people, like people got, you know, 
all up in arms about uh, Robert Downey Jr. and Tropic Thunder. It's like I think that is the most acceptable use of blackface because it's satirical. Um, right, right. And so it's just, uh, but yeah, I agree. It probably wouldn't happen today, but I don't think it's actually unlike the you, you know the our hero using the f word. Um, it's interesting that the f word has the term the f word has has changed. I hope it has because I I still feel like when I say the f word, I have to make clear which one i'm talking about i guess that's true that i'm not depends saying on the audience yeah i'm not saying fuck if it were fuck i would say fuck yeah i'm saying the word that i don't want to say anymore i feel like n-word f-word and c-word i uh-huh. think those are the three yeah uh i don't know if there's any others did you know you know the was it hbo or showtime who had the show the big c where laura linney had cancer yeah do you know it was originally developed under the title the c-word Hmm. And I think someone must have like pulled somebody aside and been like, I think that's not what you're going for. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, um, uh, moving on. I also watched, um, I had watched this when we recorded last week and I just forgot to talk about it. We talked about it off mic. I mm-hmm. saw Chris Rock's top five. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's really, really good. Um, I think, I mean, there are times uh, that I think it gets a little too plot focused and it kind of slows down. It's yeah. It's more... The movie's more in its element, and Chris Rock seems more in his element when it's just yeah. sort of uh, meandering around and has characters just sort of opining hilariously or trying to make each other laugh. You know, there's a um, th- th- there's a part about if Tupac were alive, and like at first the char- like characters are insisting like he could be in politics by now, you mm-hmm. know, and Chris Rock says, well, he could be, but he could also be playing the dark skinned bad boyfriend in a Tyler Perry movie, <laughs> kicking Jill Scott, Jill Scott down a staircase. <laughs> the funniest I left. So I, I had been told about that line. Yeah. Or read it in a review or something. Um, and I still laughed out loud. It's so funny. And, but there's, and there's fantastic cameos and, but it has a real sense. And I, I do know what the cameos are and I, well, I don't even know if told... you know all of them cause there's a lot of them. Okay. But, well, I yeah. know, I know like the big one. Okay. Um, and I'm told that he says a very funny line and I, uh-huh. and I was told what the line is like, that's, that's pretty funny. Um, okay. I have to tell me which line, cause there's a couple I could be thinking of. Um, anyway, um, what was I going to say? I forget what I was going to say. I'm it's, sorry. But uh, I think it's – it. Fe- I, I never saw um, I Think I Love My Wife. Did you see that one? No. But um, I don't think well, – we don't tend to think of Chris Rock director. But I feel like Top 5 is kind of an announcement like he. this could be a career for him. You know, it's interesting. I was talking with friend of the show, Jason Aiken, about Top 5. He saw it and thought it was often quite funny. But he also said that the storytelling – and the and the jarring tonal shifts, um, they seemed like sort of an inexperienced director, right? I, I think that's kind of what I'm saying too. Is that okay. if he, you know, if if he if he gains some more confidence as a director, and, and maybe he's just given more leeway as a director, yeah, um, and doesn't feel like he has to like impose certain plot elements onto his movie, yeah, um, he can make something really really fantastic you know like i mean uh i was lofty before in comparing the birthday boys to the kids in the hall um but i could compare the best parts of top five to the best parts of a richard linkletter type movie oh okay it just feels so relaxed and lived in you know you don't you're not really worried about how does this tie into the plot because it doesn't need to it's so competently done Mm -hmm. that i think if he could make a whole movie that feels like that he could be uh, a real uh serious artist yeah i'm i'm excited to see it at you know at this time of year 
there are some movies that get prioritized over others, and I'm sure I would like top five, but probably not as much as you know certain other movies that y- you will hear me talk about uh, as we move on. But uh, but yeah, that's one that uh, I'm sure when it comes out on Blu-ray, I think I will actually uh, take the time to watch it. Um, and then I'll talk about one more before I'll hand it over to you. Okay. Um, I finally saw another superhero movie. I hadn't seen a superhero movie since Man of Steel. Okay. This one it's probably not one of the ones you're thinking of. I saw Disney's Big Hero Six. Oh, okay. And it was a it was a blast. It's a yeah, really it's, good time. It's, it's delightful. You saw it. Yeah. Right. Did you review it for the website? Uh, I, I did not. I did I was supposed to uh, go to that screening, but I wound up I think getting sick. Oh, okay. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, I thought it had a great um, sort of. Is I mean I, I like that you know I said the last superhero movie I saw was Man of Steel, which is an incredibly overdone, bloated movie. Yeah. Whereas Big Hero Six is a really brisk, like ninety-seven minutes, uh, and it, it there's the it, it it has a real sense of forward momentum and of depth of characters. Yeah. Although it does seem it does seem like this is a world where there are these six characters plus a couple other people who are either villains or friends of theirs. Yeah. And then no one else in the world seems to really exist to a certain extent. Um, yeah. There's not, it's, it's a pretty insulated story. And it's also about the idea of, uh, or, or one of the plots, uh, one of the main plot, uh, generators is that he's created these, uh, robots that can turn themselves into all sorts of thing, eliminating the yeah. need for construction workers. Say, And I, so I kept thinking, at the beginning, when these when this was introduced, I kept thinking about all the jobs that would be lost if this if this kid's uh, invention really worked. Um, and the movie doesn't seem very concerned with that. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> um, I don't think they. I don't think. I, I think they cut all the uh, the uh, economic downturn subplots. Yeah, but uh, I think now, obviously, Big Hero Six is a comic. I, I wasn't aware of it before, yeah, but it is. A, it is a Marvel comic. Um, but the character design of Baymax is so fantastic to me. I feel like there are so many things when it comes to people always talk about like when there's monster movies, like, oh, it's just another variation on the same monster we've seen before. You know, yeah. Baymax is a character design that really does feel new to me. Uh, yeah. Now, obviously, I, I guess it's based on the comic, but the way that he talks and moves couldn't yes. have been in the comic. The way yes, that he Scott adds it. Yeah, as, as great. As great as the voice. Um, but just the way that like the and the different ways that he moves when more more um programs have been put into his yeah. brain when he runs the first time it's adorable yeah and just and when he's when the the main character is trying to get him to, to go faster he goes i am not fast <laughs> yeah i love it uh yeah and then he but then he turns into uh, a badass by the end yeah um i really feel like it's it's not it, it's not as good as the incredibles but i feel like uh certainly the action sequences mm-hmm. are right there alongside it um mm-hmm. Like the, I really got a really strong sense of the villain. Like even before we know who he is or what his motivations are, just it's such a great design and the yeah. way and and he seems like a really great supervillain. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was really it was really exciting. And while some of the you know plot machinations I thought were fine, um, and I feel like maybe some of the characters in the six uh, aren't. F- really well developed yeah. um it feels a little perfunctory at times the 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 key relationships are well established and i'm yeah i really enjoyed it it's a delightful film okay um 
I still I still have more than you, so maybe I'll go for I'll go, I'll do one more, then I'll toss okay. it to you. And this is a movie that I know you're about to see very soon, but I finally caught up with Force Majeure. Okay. Um, and so I won't go much into it because we'll we'll we're gonna end up talking about Force Majeure sure. uh, in later episodes. Um, but it, it's it's just uh, you know there are certain like technical things when I watch a movie and a movie's like say bad. Mm-hmm. I'll think like I'm not a filmmaker, but I could. I know how that could be done better. Yes. Right? But some of some of the movies I often respond to the most is where it's like, I really don't think there's any way that I could have... There's no way that I, on my best day, yeah. could have made something this, this vital and this immediate. Yeah. The way that... The way that the married couple in Force Majeure... It's not about the way they argue. I mean, they do argue, mm-hmm. but it's also about the way that when if you and your spouse are, you know, maybe not seeing eye to eye for an extended period of time, you're not arguing the whole time, but there's a mood. You know what I mean? Uh, very much so. Yes. And like I, I could pick apart and analyze all day, and I don't know that I could get quite to how the director. Ruben Oslin, is that something like that? I don't recall. Um, how he made that so, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Palpable. Palpable. That's exactly what the word I was yeah. looking for. Uh, it, it's it's beautiful. But also, the according, uh, I mean, uh, in addition to that, the movie is just beautifully shot. Yeah. And the music's great. Uh, and it really just, uh, it's, it's, it's perfect. I don't think you could make it any better. A friend of mine who saw it said that, it reminded him of a John Cassavetes film, which you don't necessarily think of when you're talking about an avalanche film uh, or something yeah. like that. But he said that it, it that my being a big Cassavetes fan that uh, that I would probably like it. And I have no doubt that I will. Um, OK, did you want to go uh, one more? I forget. No, you go. OK, so I believe you talked about this already, but I, I uh, saw Morton Morton Tildum, right? Directed the imitation game. Yes. So I saw that film. And yeah, it's fine. Um, it's <laughs> uh, I'll say that really great. I mean, it's you know at this point praising the film for uh, for Benedict Cumberbatch's performance is pretty standard, but really great, heartbreaking, especially by the end performance by him. Like I really, all of the film's uh, themes uh, really hit home with his performance. Keira Knightley is really good as well. Um, <clears throat> And uh, I also really like the score. There's a lot that I actually like about the movie. It's a it's it's a very it's a very competently made film. Uh, the first half hour of the script made me want to kill myself um, <laughs> because it falls into what I have. I I, I this is this was a, sh- a shorthand that I would use, and it's a thing that I find myself saying a lot now. Uh, Aaron Brockovich syndrome, mm-hmm. where. The other characters have read the script. They recognize they're not the lead and they should be accommodating. Um, and so for the first half hour, you have characters setting up the main character to burn them uh, and that sort of thing. And just uh-huh. and you have characters. They don't say this, but it's like, hey, this is highly unorthodox, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> and uh, and then just being like, how could he say such a thing? You know, don't you know there are rules and uh, that sort of thing. And just and uh, and I thought like, oh, oh. I was like, is this if this is what this movie is going to be, I'm going to hate it. But it's speaking it of wanting get, to get rid of that, wanting to kill yourself. <laughs> OK, um, 
the part that got the first time he meets Charles Dance, right? Yeah. And he's just being a dick, right? Yeah. And I, I, I'm getting like secondhand embarrassment. Oh, okay. Just talking about how stupid this is, and because it, it's a cliche that's been done in movies before. He's been a dick the whole time, and just as Charles Dance is about to throw him out of his office. He says the one word that's going to get Charles Dance's attention. Yes. And it's, oh, I, I hate yeah, that. Yeah, that's exactly. Who that talks scene, like that? Uh, people in movies yeah. and nowhere else. Nowhere else. Um, yeah, it's one of those things that just that just gets me. And you know what? Here's the thing. I I say I call it Aaron Brockovich syndrome because it's the, f- it, you know, it was probably the first instance that I saw of it. Since then, it's been done much worse uh, <laughs> by movies like The Blind Side. Blind Side's probably the worst version of it. But, um, you know. Aaron Brockovich is actually pretty uh, gritty and real now uh, compared to stuff. But that scene, I love Charles Dance. And I think he, I think both actors are doing their best. But like, I mean, if I saw that script, don't get me wrong. I mean, I've, I've got it in the Oscar pool for adapted screenplay. Uh, not the Oscar pool, our, our fantasy Oscar draft for adapted screenplay. So I'm rooting for it. Uh, and the script becomes better. But it's that initial introductory stuff. Like really that first half hour that I thought, like, I hate this script because so much of it is that um the way that he interacts with matthew good and charles dance and just basically everybody yeah um i just i hate i hate it so much but uh it recovers pretty tremendously it gives enough detail that i actually uh had a sense of what it is he was doing uh but you know what i find myself thinking about this a lot when it comes to biopics sometimes i find as, as great as the performances are and all that and as effective as the music was and all that, part of me is just like, I, I feel like I'd rather watch a documentary yeah. about yeah. this. That's exactly how I felt on when I watched The Theory of Everything because oh, I sure. know, oh, there's a um, there's a movie. It's called The Brief History of Time. It's yeah. about this and it, it, it was much better. Well, and that's the thing is anytime you do a biopic about somebody who thinks in a more complex way, you know, Beautiful Mind – Theory of Everything, Imitation Game, probably any number of others, um, where we're, they need to assure us that what these people are doing is pretty amazing. Now, thankfully, Imitation Game, the stuff that he is uh, pioneering is very relevant to us, uh, yeah. so they don't have to push that hard. But um, but I feel like a, a documentary allows you to go into a little bit more detail about exactly what it is they're doing. Um, you know, There's a movie that I saw this year called... Uh, particle fever that was actually very good and it certainly put it in kind of layman's terms but not so much that i felt like i was being spoken down to um and uh, like they really seemed to they really wanted to stress like it's important that you know how how key this is and so um but yeah it's it's a movie that i'd say you know if um over at more than one lesson as we talk about the best pictures we talk about uh if someone was going to see this movie would would i warn them away from it Uh uh probably not Okay. It's a, it's a, it winds up being a perfectly fine film with again some really great performances and uh, I really cannot speak highly enough about the score. I think it's oh. wonderful. Um, you should read *Cryptonomicon*, the Neil Stevenson novel, which involves code breaking and Alan Turing is actually a minor oh, okay. character in the in the book. Anyway, uh, real quick about *Theory of Everything*. You've okay. seen it, right? I've not seen it. Oh, okay. Well, I was talking last week with friend of the show pilar alessandra mm-hmm. and she had just seen it she asked my opinion and i regurgitated my opinion of the movie and i realized i don't know if you have this with especially at this time of year when there's a lot of you're at, we're probably talking about the same movie multiple times with multiple people yeah 
I'm more connected at this point to my opinion of the theory of everything than the actual memory of having seen the movie because it's been months since I saw it now, and I feel like that's that's a bad thing. Like I yeah, know I've when someone to. asks me what I think of theory of everything, I have like an elevator pitch of why what I didn't like about it. But that's the thing; it's it depends on the movie. If you if you ask me what I liked about the Babadook, a movie that I well, that which I, I loved, will very soon. Yeah, um, you ask me about that. Suddenly, I'll be kind of at a loss for words, and then I'll just I'll have so much stuff to say because right. it's a film that continues to engage me. Okay. But when it's a movie like Theory of Everything, where it's like, okay, well, which you didn't see, but which I didn't see, or just but there's right. there's any number of movies like that uh, every year where you see it, and there's some good stuff about it, but mostly all you think of is the problems, and rather than try to reengage with the film over and over again, a movie that doesn't deserve that. Um, Again, I haven't seen Theory of Everything, but base, uh, the reason I didn't see it is because what you said about it is what everyone said about it, which is uh-huh. it's two great performances, the end. Right. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, uh, I feel like I feel like you kind of have to, especially this time of year, you have to do it. You you sort of have yeah. to do that as long, as long as you're not doing that for everything and being like, okay, I can boil I can boil this down to three bullet points and we're good. <laughs> right, right. I feel like that's that's a, that's fine. All right. Uh, next up for me, did you see the box trolls? I did. Um, good. So did I. That's the next one we're going to talk about. Okay. It was not a role of nothing. Okay. We're going to talk about the box trolls. Uh, I really liked it. it. It's, I mean, of the three Leica movies, it's the third for me. Yeah. yeah. Coraline and Paranorman are both better. Um, yes. but, uh, I, I really enjoyed this. I really, n- normally I'm not someone who likes stuff that's gross, but this was gross in a way that I really responded to because so much of it. And it like, and yeah. And, but not, I guess because it's not gross in a like uh scatological or like who isn't this funny that it's gross kind of way. It's right. like <laughs> the way that um the villain his <laughs> allergic reaction to cheese oh. is so disgusting that it's not even funny. It just turns him into a monster. Yeah. Um also that's which been, is which is partially the point. Yeah. Did, did you yeah, did you uh, you probably know cuz you look at this sort of thing. That's Ben Kingsley. Uh, I knew he did a voice for it. I didn't know which one. And then I was able to pick it out, but he's great. It's a great but, vocal performance. Okay. Try to divorce yourself from having known he was in it. Yeah. I was convinced it was Michael Gambon the whole time. Oh, interesting. Until the end, I was like, oh, I, yeah. I would have sworn that was Michael Gambon. That's interesting. Um, anyway, uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I really enjoy, um, I really, I just really like Leica's whole thing. It just feels their, like their, their business model but uh i guess the fact that it's not that yeah that they're making movies that are um you know for children but not pandering to children they remind me of not uh, based on a there's not a formula that i can detect like the yeah. each of their movies feels like a standalone sort of object of art yeah that um is considered first and foremost as an object of art and not as uh, a commodity or part of a franchise um or a marketing tool. i might get this name wrong but they remind me of is it ardman yeah that's right uh the the guys that did wallace and gromit but they also did you know uh, chicken run and flushed away and that sort of thing um they remind me of that which is that their their films do tend to well, have a very specific kind and they're of, all stop motion that's and they're all stop motion yeah but um but they have a very specific look that they're preserving they often have a very specific kind of tone they all seem kind of similar in tone, but they're very distinct stories. They're distinct worlds. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed the box trolls, uh, quite a bit. Uh, 
Yeah, but I, you say distinct tone, and I can see it. But I feel like Box Trolls is dissimilar to the other two in that it doesn't um, it doesn't become as grand by the end. Like, I mean, the no, the, no, the, yeah, the yeah. big sort of steampunk machine thing, that, yeah. um, which is apparently like the largest stop motion object that's ever been made for a stop motion movie because it's like it's like five feet tall (laughs) in real life um which is crazy um uh that's really cool but i mean think about i mean Coraline and paranorman both essentially leave our plane leave the plane of reality that they uh take place in you know they uh, they get really cosmic yeah Uh, and this one never does it felt a little more maybe what i mean by tone is a a thematic tone um while all of these films i guess i guess in Coraline, the the other mother is is viewed as just inherently predatory but even then it, she seems to be lonely and uh, she wants she has a desire for love even if she doesn't necessarily know how to do it um how to how to give it um and so but if you look at paranorman and this the both films have a refusal to view people as pure villains even ben kingsley in this who's a bad guy yeah it's true he has a desire to to you know change his lot in life, and he he accepts the narrative that is given to him, which is these people, the yeah. white hats, they are what you what we should all aspire to be, and so he's willing to go to extreme lengths to be that. Yeah. But it's a it's a motivation that I think we all understand. Right. So I feel like both of them. I think all three films have a have a thematic similarity. All right. What's next for you? What's next for me is The Rover. Oh, good. I'm so glad you saw it. <clears throat> Did you see it? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. I wrote a review, review for the website. Okay. Um, and it's, I think, I think it has only recently been bumped out of my top 10 of the year. It's still oh, in, like, okay. honorable mention territory. But I still have some stuff to see before we do our list um, the week before the Oscars. Just a <laughs> okay. reminder for the, uh, for the listener, that's when we do our top 10 list. Yeah. Um, I keep saying. I thought we were supposed to have some on the website. By uh, the 11th. 11th is when it starts. Uh, okay. In order to accommodate people's uh, schedules and stuff so okay. that they could see as much as possible, I had to bump stuff back a little bit. Okay. Um, but, uh, yeah, the rover uh, is fantastic. And I know I talk about it all the time, but last time we did one of these, I talked about the AV clubs. We were talking about Noah. Mm-hmm. I talked about the AV club doing their list of best scenes of the year. Okay. And um, Robert Pattinson sitting in the car singing along to Pretty Girl Rock. Okay, was <laughs> one of their best scenes of the year. It is. A, it is a good scene. It is good, and apparently the song choice was Pattinson's, hmm. um, which is very interesting. I do like. How I, I always. I mean, Robert Pattinson could have gotten basically just a free ride for the next ten years mm-hmm. on Twilight, and he could have just gone with more of that. This character is so different. The, and of course, between this and something like Cosmopolis, um, he's really he really seems to be trying to kind of demolish the way he is viewed. Um, but not just that. Like he's he's not just. I don't feel like he's just going for uh, choosing things based on what's the most opposite of Edward oh, no. Cullen. Like, I, I think I mean he's trying he's to make not, good stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he's going with what is what I think. Uh, Certainly, I think he wanted to work with David Cronenberg, and I think he liked the, the, the what that character had to offer. And the character in the rover, same deal. Um, but what I mean is, like, 
you know, I, I can just I can sort of imagine like his manager agent being like, this isn't <laughs> going to make you any money and this isn't going to help your career. This isn't going to help uh, your marketability and stuff like that. And him saying, I don't care. I want to mm-hmm. do this. And so not not really uh, not really allowing that to dictate what he wanted to do. Not that he's like, I want the exact opposite so much as, oh, the exact opposite has presented itself. I want to be in it. So I will be. Um, so that's something that I, that I admire a great deal. And so I think his performance, he's, is really great. He just, that's a really, that character is very lived in. I believe him completely from it's, and th- and that's the thing. Um, I've said this about characters like Homer Simpson and Darth Vader, where every aspect of them is complete uh, from how they are written to how they are played to what they look like. And that character from how he's written, how he's played, and then even stuff like the clothes they give him to wear, that it all seems completely consistent. This character seems like he would exist in any reality. Uh, and so... Um, and so I th- I think the film is often being talked about as like oh look at uh, look how far Robert Pattinson is from from what he has done in the past but I think it's also a really it, it's a really great depiction of you know the world um, that is you know at this point I've gotten uh, I, I'm growing a little bit tired of dystopian future movies but this one because it's so I mean it might as well be a western. On top of everything else, that's that's exactly how I described it in my review. Yeah, and it's uh, so I'm fine with that. And also, I do think I forget who, and it might have been the dissolve that said that uh, <clears throat> that there's really something special to Guy Pierce's performance in this as well, where he's played tough characters before, um, and characters that are undergoing like an existential crisis, like in the Proposition, but. Uh, but this type of character is is new to him, where there's a coldness uh, and also just uh, such a deep sense of of longing. Uh, mm-hmm. There's there's definitely more than one lesson to be had out of this film. This I uh, because you have a character who so desperately wishes that there were consequences to his actions, um, at even at the very least, like. Maybe not eternally, but like uh, cosmic consequences to his actions. Um, no, I know not that many people have seen the rover, so I'm not going to give away the end. Which is not right. not to say there's not a twist at the end, but there is a reveal at the end of sorts. Yeah. Um, uh, what? <laughs> this sounds like there's a banshee in your neighborhood. Oh uh, yeah, they just moved in. <laughs> <laughs> um, did you feel like the reveal at the end recolored that character? for you a little bit i feel like it did I, in a way that really worked for me I've, I've heard other people complain about the end um what i like about it is that it answers some things and brings up more questions at the same yeah, time which yeah. which i think is great yeah okay um i feel like i had more to say about the rover but i forget um i did have more to say and i can't remember what it is now um oh well oh yeah you know what i wanted to say I, uh, when I wrote my review, I got some good comments and a lot of retweets from like some serious Robert Pattinson fans, like serious, like team Edward. Oh, that's people. right. Yes, yes. And so I st- like for a time I didn't keep up with it cause it gets a little repetitive, but for a time I followed some of them back on Twitter just to see what it was like. Yeah. And it was wonderful because I think we have this way, like as 
you know, film snobs, we can sometimes be a little snobby about when someone like this takes this kind of role. And we think like, oh, man, how weird is it going to be when all the people who are fans of, you know, um, of of Robert Pattinson or, you know, Selena Gomez fans going to see Spring Breakers, like how Mm -hmm. weird is it going to be? And I realize like that's kind of a shitty thing to say and that these people just because they like Robert Pattinson, they're not stupid. These are smart people and they far far and wide they really loved the rover and yeah uh i i think it was it was a it was a lesson to me mm-hmm. to not be so damn snotty all the time um which is something i still need to learn like i sometimes need to remind myself that everyone likes movies not just me and people like me yeah and everyone who sees a movie has a right to have an opinion on it i don't know this goes back years on the podcast but yeah, i've yeah. often had problems with because I, you know, I have, I, I work in the movie industry. But one thing you find when you work in the movie industry, you might, you, you at home right now might think like, oh, everyone in the movie industry must be into movies. No, no, not the even, vast majority of them don't give a shit about. Not movies. even everybody in <laughs> film school yeah. was into movies, right? Yes, which blew me away. Um, so yeah, I will hear my coworkers talk about movies, and sometimes I very, in a very elitist way, I put in my headphones and would just set my teeth on edge because they're like, it, they're having conversations that I feel like my first reaction is like, well, you're fundamentally wrong about this and I can't even listen to anything that you have to say. Um, and that's really shitty and I really shouldn't do that. Anyway, uh, that's what I learned from following Robert Pattinson fans on Twitter. Well, tuning people out is probably not the best, uh, approach, but I will it's, say that like, look, it's, it's my approach to most of the things that happen at work. Fair I enough. like my job, but you know, okay. I have to work alongside other people and that's not always the most conducive thing for me. Okay. All right. Moving on. Um, but staying in Australia, let's talk about the Babadook. All right. It's fantastic. Yeah. Um, I'm glad it, you like it. It made me think like, I don't watch enough horror movies. Um, but I also, I also, I don't watch enough horror movies to know like how many of them are going to scare me in this way. Cause I'm like, I know Paul Tompkins made fun of this on his first album. The idea that like people say that I think people like to be scared. Yeah. And he made his, fun of his that. His second album, actually. I was listening to it earlier oh, today. Oh, the second album? Yeah. Okay. Um, oh, right. It's Freak Wharf. Yes. Right. That's right. Yeah. I'm thinking of the rest of the bit now. I remember that. Uh, anyway. Um, but I really do. Like, I, I really do like to be scared. I like scary movies when they work. I waited until my wife had gone to bed and I watched The Babadook alone after midnight mm-hmm. in, you know, uh, in uh, and I thought it was, I thought it was great. Like that was my favorite way to watch it. It scared the shit out of me. Yeah. But I also don't tend to carry that with me that much. Like I'll be scared during a movie, but then I have no problem like falling asleep or being in the dark or anything like that. Um. But uh, it it really did work, and there are things, um, that have that have popped into my head in the week or so since I've watched the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, it hasn't been quite a week uh, that have given me the little chills again, you know, yeah. the, uh, you can bring me the boy. That, that voice yeah. is, is very creepy. Um, but I will say this. I, I will. I want to ask you this. Okay. Initially, when it was over, mm-hmm. I was like, that was awesome. It was very scary. I'm not entirely sure the ending works. I went to bed and the next morning, this is why I often wait at least a day to have real conversations about movies. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, except for with the person I saw it with, cause I'm working through it together sometimes with them. But, um, the next morning I was walking my dog and I was thinking about the way the movie ends and the, um, 
the lines of dialogue that lead to the that that are like an emotional catharsis mm-hmm. or, or catalyst is more of the word I'm looking for. Yeah, because that's the problem I was having. It was like you mean by end you mean climax, not the end. Both. Okay. All right. Um. But yeah, the cli- the climax is what I'll talk about because it's like she seems to find some strength, mm-hmm. and the character we've seen up till then doesn't really have that. Where did it come from? And I didn't. It did you feel it right away? It was only it was only the next morning thinking back to what happens before that before she finds her strength right. that I that I realized oh that does make perfect sense that's exactly where it came from yeah um, and and we can't, I don't want to talk about yeah, it right here yeah but you and I can talk about it off mic but so so I feel like the end of the movie works intellectually but there's something that gave me a little hiccup in the actual watching it well I was a bit disconnected from the climax uh, at the time. I'll say this. There's there's a lot going on there intellectually. And there, I mean, this is maybe one of the most symbolic movies I've ever seen. <laughs> um, incidentally, I do want to talk about it for more than one lesson next year for uh, Halloween. And I think the companion film will be Forbidden Planet. Oh, cool. Um, for reasons that uh, perhaps you can, uh, you know, Monsters oh, on right, the Id yeah, and all that. Id, yeah. um, <laughs> And so, uh, Monsters on the Id. <laughs> it's about at that level. Yeah. Um, but... Uh, yeah, so there definitely is that, and just and my mind, uh, my mind was definitely engaged because I'm like, what does all this mean? And but it's not even it's not the most confusing imagery either. Um, no, but no. then, but that didn't keep my emotions from being engaged as well. So I and that's the thing is the ending. Like, I think it is a beautiful script. I think it is wonderfully symmetrical. I think it pays things off that we didn't even know were being set up. But once they paid off, we realized, holy shit, this has been it. We've been going yeah. towards this the whole time. And uh, so, yeah, what you're talking about, I think I have an idea of it. And I and I think you and I, if I had to guess, I'd say we probably arrived at the same place as far mm-hmm. as where she found that strength. Um, but, yeah, I just uh, and we will be talking about it as we as we move on uh and get to our top 10 of the year and all that. Um, but yeah, I'm very glad that you liked it. I know, I know that, uh, for a number of reasons, I know that Paul Goebel, uh, the King of TV did not care for it. Uh, for reasons that are not, that don't make sense to me personally. Sense to me I talked to him in a Denny's parking lot about yeah. it because, um, I was, uh, here's a fun story that you'll love. Um, I was at Denny's with some, with some friends and then, uh, we were, I was, I was, uh, one, one friend, I was his ride. And so, um, so we were all walking out, and he got in the car, and I said, actually, one uh, one moment. And so I was talking to this other friend, and uh, so we were just standing on the sidewalk talking. And then I hear my Bluetooth go off in the car, um, and so I just ignored it. And then I looked uh, at my phone, and there were several texts from a number I didn't recognize. And one said, D- how dare you... Uh, how dare you ignore my call? And then it said, nice red sweater, jerk. Because I was wearing a red sweater. And then it said, don't you ever come to this Denny's again. And so so I look and I'm like, what the hell? So I look, I look around and then I see Paul Goebel uh-huh. sitting in the parking lot laughing in the way that he does. Yeah. Just, ah! <laughs> just that horrible, just that Max Katie laugh. Um, and, uh, and, yeah, so um 
So he and I were talking afterwards, and we were talking about the BPs a little bit, and we start, started talking about the Babadook. And yeah, I don't, I don't agree with his reasoning at all. But what I will say is that it's interesting that you view it as so terrifying. It is very uh, disquieting. There are moments when I'm when I was just incredibly tense and frightened, but uh, going into it, it was set up for me as just just the most terrifying experience you're going to have at the movies, you know, in in a long time. I was so engaged that every moment that I'm supposed to be scared, I am. But I actually didn't find it to be that to, compared to a movie like The Conjuring last year, um, which oh, I found which I that to be see. much scarier. But I would say this was the scariest movie that I've seen since The Orphanage, uh, which I yeah, and I didn't see that either. But um, and I think both of them have. I think there's something. Um, <coughs> that. I, I think both movies take a certain patience with their scares where it's like, is there something in the house? No, there's not. Oh wait, there is. And yeah. there's not any question. There's definitely something in the house. Yeah. Is it going to come in here? Oh wait, yes it is. Now it's in here. Is it going to do like it keeps yeah. just slowly. Like it doesn't, um, you know, it, it doesn't, it, the Babadook never jumps out at anyone. No. You know, like yeah, it's, it's, there's you know, a, it's there. It's yeah. coming closer. It comes in, and then, like, the way it comes into the room is not, like, ah! Like, yeah. the door opens, and you see its hand, and you see the thing step out from behind the door, and it's, yeah. like, I guess there's there's a there's a patience and a matter-of-factness yeah. to the scares in the Babadook and in the orphanage and that I, th- I think really resonate with me. Like, for some reason, that's, that w- that's what Oh, no me. question. A sense of dread will always get me. And, I, and, by the way, I think, based on that, I think you would love The Conjuring. So, I, okay. I highly recommend you see it. All right. Um, oh, you're next. Uh, next for me is I guess we can we can breeze through some of these because I because you've talked about them already. Uh, okay. The, the Gambler. Okay. Did you um, like it? I did actually. I didn't love it, but I liked it a lot. I thought Mark Wahlberg was doing great work, especially when he's uh, you know the least effective professor in the history of the uh, college. <laughs> but um, yeah. But I think he's really good in that. I thought. Um, unsurprisingly i thought john Goodman. one of the reasons i wanted to see it is that though i'm not necessarily a big fan of william monahan he does have a certain way with dialogue and i liked the idea of john goodman saying william monahan dialogue yeah and i think he did a really good job with it but i feel like it has the same thing that the departed had well i mean it's about 20 minutes shorter than the departed if not more that which is good but um uh it's this i have the same feeling where it's like yeah, I see a lot of flaws. I don't think I like that movie that very much overall. Yeah. I'd watch it again tomorrow. <laughs> I yeah, think that's how I feel about both those movies. Yeah, it is very watchable. And yeah. and uh oh, and shoot. Rupert Wyatt has a lot to lot to do with that. Yeah, remind me what he's directed. Uh Rise of the Planet of the Apes. That's the one. Yes. Um and then uh it's Jessica Lange, right? The yeah. places and I thought she did a really yeah. great job. It's it's a really I don't know. It's it does make me want to go back and watch the original, which I've never seen. Um but I actually liked the movie quite a bit. I've got a story Okay. Of seeing the film and uh this this is a this is a story that speaks ill of me and then kind of okay. Okay. So I went to see the film uh and I was standing in line to get my uh popcorn and coke and um and there were two people in front of me and then another line and then another register opened up and the guy said I can help whoever's next and I waited for the woman in front of me to to go over Mm -hmm. and she didn't and so he said i can help who's next i waited she didn't go over and so when he said it a third time 
you know what? Here's the thing. I should have said, uh, ma'am, uh, you know, I should have tried to get her attention. Yeah. But part of me thought like, well, maybe she's actually with the guy in front of me since she doesn't seem to even be acknowledging right. it's a thing. So I walked over and uh-huh. got my popcorn and Coke. But that's the thing. I, I, I feel like I didn't do everything I could have. I could have said, ma'am, that register's open and then let her say, oh, I'm actually with, you know, this guy. So, um, <clears throat> but anyway, so I did that. Uh, got my stuff, and as I was walking away, she uh, said something to me because um, uh, she was angry that I uh, seemed to cut in line. And, uh, and she had every opportunity. Yeah, but I mean, I, like know, maybe on the one hand, you're out, right. I think you know. I I also would have alerted her. Yeah, but you don't you don't have to. You don't have to, but I think it's you know it's a courteous thing to do, and 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 I think I was in the moment. It's like, well. My movie's about to start. I, you know, yeah. I, I also if she don't... had said something to me, I would have. As much as I feel like you should have said something to her, if she had the gall to say something to me, I would have been like, I would have snapped at her. I would have said, "The guy said he was open three fucking times. You had every chance in the world." <laughs> well, here's Excuse what happened. I'm going to see my movie right here's now. What happened? Instead. I think that's what I would say. Uh, so as I'm walking away, she says something. Uh, what did she like, say? She's she's like, oh, I'm sorry. Were you next? I'm like, hey, and and I did have that thought because it took me a minute to realize she was talking to me because like, oh, suddenly you're very aware of things. Uh-huh. Um, so then I got in the theater and I was sitting there and I was feeling really bad. Um, and I would I think I probably would have felt bad if she hadn't said something. But the fact that she noticed and I was like, mm-hmm. ah, this looks bad. So I figured like the movie isn't going to start in, for like another five minutes. I will go out and I will apologize. So I went out. Only to see that she was just at that moment about to pay for her mm-hmm. uh, concession. So I I jumped in with my debit card and I was going to pay for it. <laughs> she seemed to misinterpret my jumping in. Um, seemed to think that somehow I want I'm getting in her way again. <laughs> um, <laughs> and she had some stuff. <laughs> you ran back to say yeah. and milk duds. <laughs> Put it on her tab, please. <laughs> um, so. Uh, <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, I have this lingering cough, everybody. I'm uh, from four weeks ago. I'm still I'm I feel perfectly fine. But this cough is hanging on. I'm sorry. Um, But anyway, so as I do that, she goes, she goes, oh, almost as if say you. (laughs) And so she goes, how rude are you? And I said, oh, uh, ma'am, I said, I'm going to pay for your food. I feel terrible. I'm so sorry. And it took like. It was only a moment, but you could see that just a complete changing of gears in her mind. Uh-huh. And so she's just and she's she starts stammering and she's like, oh, I, I, smoke starts yeah, coming out of her ear. Yeah. Um, and so she's just like, I, like she's does, her eye blinking does not compute. Um, and so she's like, I, I, no, no, you, you don't have to do that. That's very nice of you. No, you don't have to do that. And so literally a moment before she had said, how rude are you? And then she went into, then she goes, how nice are you? And so, and then she says, she's like, she goes, who, who does that anymore? That's, you don't have to pay for it. And I wound up not paying for it. But she's like, you don't have to pay for it, but that, that's very nice of you. And I said, I just, I feel very embarrassed. I'm, I'm very sorry that I, that I did that. And she's like, it's, it's fine. So as I walk away, she, in almost, almost like Robert De Niro and analyze this, uh-huh. she goes, uh, she's like, you, they should clone you. <laughs> and so, um, so that it's a story that, you know, saying that, like, what that, theater was this? It was at the AMC Century City. Oh. Um, so that's the thing. Like, it makes me kind of, I feel like, 
hopefully it balances out because I did something kind of selfish at the beginning and I tried to balance it out. But her reaction to me was so in in all cases was so funny that I thought uh, you would appreciate that story. Yeah, I do. And again, once you. again, your behavior at a movie theater is better than mine was or would have been. Like when we saw Scotland, PA. That's true. Um, we don't need to go into that story now. Uh, long-time listeners know, that, know the story when yeah. we saw Scotland, PA. All right. Um, <coughs> next up for me is the, uh, I guess it's another superhero movie. I saw Most Wanted Man. Um, sorry. Uh, I saw A Most Wanted Man. Oh, geez. Um, <laughs> for a moment, I'm like, is that the one with Keenan Ivory Wayans? Okay. That's a most Blank Man. Right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, no. A mo- there's a movie called Most Wanted with Keenan Ivory Wayans, and there's <laughs> right. Blank Man with Damon Wayans. Oh, okay. There's okay. too many Wayanses. I, I agree. And one of the voices in Big Hero 6 is a Wayans. I couldn't tell you which one. but Damon Wasabi. Wayans Jr., I believe. Is that who it is? Yes. Um, anyway, you saw Most Wanted Man quite a while I ago. I did, yes. Uh, I, uh, again, like with The Babadook, this is why I'm glad I wait before I have opinions on movies. Because when, I, when it was over, I was like, oh, that was good. And the next day I was like, that was really good. Yeah. I really, really liked that movie. Yeah. I'm still not okay with the fact that it's, why is it all Americans? Why didn't they just get German actors? It does it's weird. kind of bother me. It's, I don't know why, <laughs> they, why they did it. And it's not all Americans. Daniel Bruhl is in it. Right. He has about a line and a half. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm not sure why they did, like, why is it Rachel McAdams and Philip Zimmer Hoffman and Willem Dafoe? I mean, maybe just because it's more marketable that way or, or whatever. Um, I guess. Know, but at the same time. And but the it's, thing, not a, like, it's not an intentionally marketable movie. It isn't. But maybe that's the only way they could get the movie made yeah. um, is to have, you know, names attached. Because um, I'm sure they thought that Philip Zimmer Hoffman would go and, and do like press for it right. and would go and maybe and could be a big contender for awards and stuff. Right. Um, which. He, if he were uh, still around, I think he probably would. I think his performance is wonderful. It is. And, um, yeah, I, I, uh, I believe it was the first, I, th- I think I saw it in like July. Um, I think there are movies that I liked before that, but I remember this was, it was my favorite movie of the year for a very long time. It was the, maybe the first movie of the year that I thought like this is something, even as the film was, was happening, I was like, this is really something special. Um, and I, I usually don't like to just address, I don't know if this is actually true of me, <laughs> but just address other people's criticisms. Mm-hmm. But I didn't find the movie to be slow moving. I like, I, that's been the mo- the biggest criticism is like, uh, it just moves too slow. Um, I, I don't find I that. I've not heard that. Like, I mean, I understand that. Yeah. Compa- it's not a, it's not a Jason Bourne movie uh, yeah. as far as spy movies go, but it's not like, like it, it does seem to. It, it it seems to in a way that I really like um, something I often respond to in movies is that it establishes a pace early on mm-hmm. and kind of sticks to it. Yeah, and I understand like people are used to movies that ramp up as they go, and I like yeah. those too. You know, we'll talk about uh, one of those uh, very soon here. Um, but I, uh, I I don't yeah I never felt that it moved slow. No, and you know what I think I think people are getting. So this is an example of a movie that takes its cues from its characters, um, which tends to happen with John le Carre movies like Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy and The Spy Who Came In From The Cold. Um, I think people are getting uh, slow mixed up with uh, methodical. I think it is a very methodical pace because that is how these characters uh, approach their job in, in this case. And uh, I've never heard... I did not hear that uh, oh, that complaint. I tend and, to 
you know, <clears throat> read a lot of reviews of movies after I see them. I read, I read a few, but uh, the ones that I read were all very favorable, and I think everyone does a really great job. The to me, I mean, of course, Philip Seymour Hoffman does a, a really good job, but uh, I tell you, the one who I shouldn't have been surprised, but uh, I was pleasantly surprised by how much screen time he got was Willem Dafoe. I read, I read your review. One, yeah. Yours was one of the ones I read. After oh, okay. I watched the movie. Okay. <clears throat> yeah. Oh, did in my review did I complain? It moves a little slow. No, <laughs> no, um, you didn't. But yeah, um, do do you agree? Like, I feel like he didn't yeah. see. I didn't think that character was going to get a lot of screen time, but he's allowed. Uh, you know, well, I had the same reaction that you had in your review was that the fir- when he first shows up, you're like, okay, he's one of the bad guys because yeah. just because it's Willem Dafoe, yeah. and he turns out to be like, and he's a banker, yeah, and he turns out to be. I mean, he's not an everyman in the sense that he's incredibly wealthy, but he yeah. turns out to be a, a pretty regular guy. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, I got, just he's he's so much because this is a movie about, you know, the war on terror and all that. And there's this idea of like so many of us. Ha- we, we have a general idea of what that means. We feel like there's nothing we can do. And so if somebody came up to you and said, hey, you can play a key role in the war on terror. You'd be like, uh, OK, <laughs> I guess I. I guess I will, but you'd be yeah. so far out of your depth. And even though this guy is rich and, and kind of powerful, he's out of his depth. And it's weird to see Willem Dafoe play somebody that is out of their depth. Yeah. You know, cause he's such a powerful actor, but I'm glad, I'm glad you liked it. I did. Moving um, on. Okay. So this next, is going to be our longest movie journal ever. It's, it's yeah, I know. Damn it. Got to do this. Try to do this every week, even if we're not recording an episode. Um, okay. Uh, the next for me, I do not remember the name of the director, but the film is called Milius. Oh. It is about director. Is it about John Milius? It is about John Milius. All right. And uh, I had seen that it was, I knew a little bit about John Milius, and I knew that he was uh, crazy. Um, but, uh, and also, you know, kind of responsible for some of the best movies ever um, in some ways. And so, um, so it was on my Netflix queue for a while. And then, of all places, National Review did a little profile of John Milius. Uh, partially because you know he's kind of politically conservative, but he's 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 kind of sort of a man without a party, honestly. Because I think there are some things that he believes that I don't think people on the right would like. Mm-hmm. But he certainly uh, is. People on the left are not remarkably comfortable with the, some of his movies. Have been called fascistic. Pauline Kael did not care for him. Uh, there's a lot of stories about him. There's one that uh, that they tell in the uh, National Review article that I think is wonderful, uh, where. Uh, he was at a uh, Hollywood party and Pauline Kael was there and she had been very uh, critical of his films. And so uh, he'd had a few drinks. And so he said to a friend of his, hey, uh, can you go tell Pauline Kael that I'd like to go talk to her, that I'd like to talk to her? And so the friend walked over and said to uh, Kael that um, like, oh, John Milius is here and he would like to talk to you. And then she rather snidely said, is he armed? Uh, and so, which incidentally, as it turns out, uh, there's always a possibility John Milius was armed. Um, but, uh, so then they, the person comes back and John Milius gave the person this message to give to Pauline Kale. Uh, tell her that I, that I am not armed, but that I myself am a weapon, uh, which I think is wonderful. Um, like that's, that's a man who wrote for, uh, for, uh, uh, Kilgore uh-huh. in, uh, in Apocalypse Now. Uh, yeah. And so uh, but it's a really it's a wonderful documentary about a guy who um, who kind of sh- for 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 film fans and also people that kind of grew up in the 80s. Uh, not that we necessarily grew up, but, you know, we you know, 
Conan and Red Dawn and stuff like that. We watched those when we were younger. And um, and he sort of shaped yeah. his decade. And uh, Yeah. It's and a really interesting That is film. what he's associated with. But don't forget, he also created Rome, HBO's yes, Rome. Yes, he did. Yeah. In a day, I think. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, obviously uh, we need to end the show there. Right? <laughs> which is uh, – a really good show. Yeah. Which, by and, the way... And it absolutely fits with the stuff he makes. Um, off topic. Okay. Go to Best Buy right now. No. If you go to Best Buy to the Blu-ray, TV on Blu-ray section, mm-hmm. right? Rome Season 1 on Blu-ray. Uh, $17.99. Okay. Rome Season 2 on Blu-ray. $17.99. Okay. Put that together. That's about $36 by my estimation. Okay. Right? Yeah. <sighs> Rome Season 1 and 2 box set... It's essentially just you're paying $50 for the cardboard box that the two things come in. Is there perhaps a bonus disc? Maybe there is, but it can't be worth $50. It's probably not worth $50. Um, Anyway, I just thought that was very funny. Um, That's crazy. But yeah, it's it's a film. It's on Netflix. Uh, If you're a fan of of filmmaking and also the idea that there are certain certain, um, directors and just Hollywood personalities that become known almost just as much for being a personality as for the stuff they do. And John right. Milius, after a while, one of the reasons that he didn't really work that much is because the personality started to overwhelm the, the, the artist. And mm-hmm. so, um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's a very interesting film, and he's a very interesting guy. Okay. Um, I've been dying to talk about this one. Okay. I believe you saw it. All right. Uh, it's incredible. It's the, certainly the best debut work from a director this year. Uh, it's Dan Gilroy's Nightcrawler. Oh yeah, okay. You've seen it? Yes. Oh my god! Like, I mean, I I had heard good things. Yeah, it's incredible. It's it's so good. Yeah, and there is there is not. Uh, uh, I'm not the first person to coin this phrase or even use it specifically about Nightcrawler, but there is not a bit of fat on that movie. No, it gets going and then no it just rockets the forward. No fat on the movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What's with um, between um, this and Mark Wahlberg and the Gambler? There's a lot of Skinny guys guys w- losing weight to play roles where it's not necessarily important that they're skinny. But Mark, Mark Wahlberg lost a ton of weight to be in The Gambler, too. Um, yeah, I guess that's true. I don't think I didn't think about that. I mean, it's I think it's more noticeable on Jake Gyllenhaal. But yeah. Um, yeah, but it's it's unbelievable that a first time director made something uh, this this perfect. <laughs> this is a clockwork movie that is it is so self-assured. Uh-huh. Um, and I'll say this thematically, it's not really tackling anything new, but the way that it does it, the way he writes that character and, and just how he just regurgitates these things that he's read elsewhere. It's so, well, it's such a brilliant character. It reminded me in a way of Tony Soprano repeating things that, hmm. um, Dr. Melfi says to him yeah. later in conversations, yeah. you know, um, I know seniors who were inspiring. I don't know if you remember that. That's a classic Tony Soprano line. Um, but uh, but in in that sense, it is about um, they're both shows about or they're both stories about sociopaths. Yeah, and I think uh, I feel like again, I'm doing the thing where I'm addressing not the criticism, but addressing the response. I feel like way too many people have been focused on the the network type. No. aspects of nightcrawler and not as much on the taxi driver type stuff which i think is much more like the it's more about the character and i think this idea of sensationalist news is it's just the backdrop it's not really what the movie's about it's about a yeah. sociopath and it's specifically about 
um, I think as someone who works in the corporate office type world, yeah. I think it's about what it takes these days to get ahead. I mean, the the first like extended speech he has when he is selling stolen metal to the construction site. Yeah. And he talks about, he has this thing about, um, because yeah, he's asking for a job and he talks about, I know the idea, the idea of, um, moving up via workplace loyalty is, uh, antiquated. And the fact that that's, that idea is at the very beginning of the movie, I think informed so much of the movie for me. Oh yeah. Um, that, yeah. Um, this, complete psychopath is the kind of person who would get ahead in corporate America. Well, and it's, yeah. And that's the thing is, is I think people are focusing as, as I just said, it's not really treading, it's not really, uh, you know, breaking new ground as far as, uh, the world that it's depicting, but this character is a unique creation and it, and it says a lot about that world that like this guy wouldn't do great in every industry. (laughs) Right. But in this industry, he can yeah. do. He can work wonders. And it's interesting. You went taxi driver. I went. There will be blood. His oh. his arc is very similar to Daniel Plainview. Both of them are complete sociopaths. Yeah, that's true. Um, and it's just. Uh, and both of them have like this this relationship that is going to need. They're going to need to get past. And I don't remember the name of the actor, but he was in Four Lions. Yeah. Um... Is it Riz like, Ahmed? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I thought he was great. And he he's, great. and he, that character is just like, that's a great performance because he's a very specific type. Like he's not a, he's not a pure spirit either. Like he's kind of, he's a very specific type of not scumbag, but just a, just a, not even low life, but just, he, he has a, like a low place in society. Like well, and I think, when we first see him, he's basically homeless, right? And yeah, and he's low ambition. I think that's. I think that's the thing that contra- makes him the foil yeah. to to um, to Lou Bloom, yeah. Jake Gyllenhaal's character is that who is you know he's ambition you yeah. know personified, yeah. Uh, and and yeah, Rick is I think it's Rick is is not. Um, I talked last time we did uh, not uh, yeah I think I, well I talked a while ago about um, my favorite line in a movie this year being in Calvary and it mm. still is in in Calvary, but. Nightcrawler has a, a contender for best line of the year, okay. which is, I feel like grabbing you by your ears and screaming in your face, I'm not fucking interested, but instead I'm going to go home and do some accounting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, man, that character is so, like, it's, you know, it's it's hard to say, but like, my hope, I hope the film gets nominated for a few Oscars. Screenplay? Mm-hmm. Maybe cinematography, it's Robert. Robert Elswit. Robert Elswit. Yeah. There's the There Will Be Blood connection, but in a, such a different way. Yeah. Um, and Jake Gyllenhaal. Like, he's really something oh, he deserves special. It. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's, it almost reminds me of, of, like, Johnny Depp in the first Pirates movie, where I'm sure the work, I'm sure he wasn't doing this work anticipating an Oscar nomination, but great work cannot be denied. Yeah. And, like, this... And I didn't see I didn't see prisoners, nor did I see enemy. But we've talked about this before that. um, And even though his character in this is the lead, it's still a character type. Um, Yeah. And just the minute he stopped the I don't know, like either he or his representation or Hollywood itself just said, like, well, he's not really leading type. He's more of a character actor. And that's the best thing that could have happened when they didn't green light Prince of Persia, too. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Although maybe this will make it happen. (laughs) All right, what's next? Okay, what's next for me? Uh, okay, so we already talked about box trolls. Uh, Life itself. Okay, I saw that. 
Yeah. All right. So here's the deal. Uh, I love this movie. I don't think it's necessarily perfect. I. All right. I'm going to get a little personal. Okay. So I'm not much of a crier. Uh, Jen, I am. Okay. Oh, I mean, I'm not related to John Cryer. Oh, okay. um, not much anyway. Um, <laughs> just, just a little bit. A little less than most people are yeah. related to John Cryer. <laughs> um, but uh, Jen has commented in the past that like, if I'm going to cry, like if I cry, it's just a little bit. And then she's like, oh, it's, is that it? It's uh-huh. like, are you holding back? No, that's just how I cry. Every once in a while, though, I will sob uncontrollably. And I will, even if I'm alone, I will feel very self-conscious. Life itself, for a number of reasons, caused me to absolutely bawl for five minutes when it was over. For a few reasons. Some of them have to do with the movie. Some of them do not. Um, I think it's a really well – I went in expecting it to be perhaps – one of those types of films where it's just a bunch of talking heads talking about the importance of so-and-so. But because Steve James had access to Roger Ebert towards the end of his life, um, I feel like that really gives the film a a vitality um, as we're also finding it because we then contrast who he is now, who he was at the end and who he started out as. And the idea that like literally the worst thing that could have happened to this guy was the, losing the ability to speak. Right. But we also get moments that even Roger Ebert himself in the moment says, I'm glad we got that. Like there's a moment where they have to suction out his throat yeah. and it looks so horrible. Yeah. Like he's close. He's clenching his eyes. You can tell it's very painful or, yeah. or uncomfortable. By, by the way, my mom and sister saw it together on my recommendation mm-hmm. and they're both nurses. And I was like, oh, how yeah. about that? And they were like, Oh, Oh yeah, that was, <laughs> then, yeah. Like, oh, of course. It wasn't a big deal. To yeah. Them. There are much worse things. I have no doubt. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah. And so, uh, one thing that I liked and I think was was a good call on the part of Steve James is that within this film, there's a little mini biography of Gene Siskel, as yeah. there should be. Yeah. Because neither of these men, we wouldn't know as 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 big as as Eber got. I mean, he won a Pulitzer. Um, we wouldn't know any, either of their names if it weren't for each other. Right. Like they needed each other to become who they would be. Right. And so. uh so I thought it was just a really well-made documentary. I didn't I, think I could like Gene Siskel anymore, but that story about the prank on the airplane, <laughs> I love that. Even though I hate when people get pranked, yeah. the idea of just their their relationship yeah. made it okay with me. Yeah, and just and the fact that the idea that like there actually was a lot of competition and all that, but that after a while they came to, I think they came to recognize what I just said, like, oh, we, we mm-hmm. need each other. Yeah. Um, and what I will, so what I will say for on the, on the personal side, and you know, I, I feel like I talk too much about my dad and, and that, you know, I just need to get over it, but like, um, <laughs> you know, yeah, get over it. It's been 12 years. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, so, and I think this, I think it, I had this response because they focused on Siskel so much is, you know, I remember watching on Sunday afternoons, watching Siskel and Ebert when I was young and I didn't, I didn't, I didn't tune in myself. My dad watched it and I watched it with him because I liked movies and my dad liked movies and we watched it together. Um, and it's just that realization in that moment that like all three of those guys are gone now. Now, of course, I didn't know two of them, although I did meet Roger Ebert once. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, you did. I remember that. And uh, so I didn't know them. But of course, you feel like you know them as, you know, I don't mean to overstate 
us, but there are listeners who feel like they know us, just as we feel like we know other podcasters. There's something about when somebody's when somebody becomes known in some mm-hmm. way for being themselves that you feel like you know them. You feel like you get their personality. And so I kind of felt like I knew Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert. And when I go back and watch episodes online of their show, I think like, man, these guys are great together. And uh, and so, you know, I think the, the idea that like they were – it was so formative for me as a movie watcher and that all of those men are gone and just – and I watched the movie late at night. That probably – contributed to sure, my my sure. emotions uh but in that moment it you, just you i had felt, a few <laughs> uh frank sinatra song <laughs> damn it i don't remember oh regrets regrets i've had yeah, a few yeah that's not what um I <clears throat> but uh but yeah and so um but just at, at the end i actually felt very alone um because you know it just even though i'm almost 33 like i'm 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 an adult. I'm and have been for a while now. Um, it's been 10 years since I graduated college. And so I know that people would see me younger. People would see me as an adult, whereas I sometimes don't feel like I am, but I am. Um, and just, but there are times when I feel actually kind of rudderless, uh, because I realize like, Oh, you know, like some of my, a lot of my friends, and I don't know, maybe you feel, I don't know if you feel the same way. I think you and I sometimes approach, have approached grief in a different way. Um, but like, you know, I look at my friends who have like great relationships with like their dads and just, they have like a lot of like, like, like male figures in their life. And I haven't had that in a very, very long time. And this is a film that just reminded me of that. And that even, even having somebody like Roger Ebert, who still had the he still had the website and still wrote reviews so he was even even then he was still kind of an anchor in my life as a film fan and now he's gone and it's this feeling of like Gene Siskel gone then my dad gone and now Roger Ebert gone and any number of other people and just this feeling of like man it's just me now you know and 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 people that are my peers um in a way it almost feels this is going to sound strange it's like Harry Potter the the order of the phoenix can only protect him for so long and they start to go and by the end it's just him and his friends Uh they they are the you know they're the new ones i think that's a wonderful comparison so anyway so there was a lot going on uh in my response to the film and i and hopefully some of it had to do with the film itself but uh, but I'm not sure. You, you well, no, it had to do with life itself. Oh, watch out! Did you enjoyed the movie, right? Yeah, yeah, I thought it was really good. Okay, okay. Um, sorry, I did not say more about it, but I thought that was very well said, and okay. we also want to move on. Mm-hmm. Uh, keeping in uh, documentary land. In fact, the rest of my movies today are all documentaries. Interesting. Um, that wasn't intentional. Just what I've been watching. Notably <laughs> not. Um, but this goes back to a movie we talked about with Matt Warren when he came back from Sundance almost a year ago. Mm-hmm. It's a documentary called The Internet's Own Boy. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, about Aaron. Aaron Swartz. Yeah. Which uh, is a galvanizing and infuriating and inspiring uh, story. Uh, it's really well told. Um, I mean, sometimes I feel like it casts a little too – because it's almost uh, – self-defeating in some ways and that Aaron Swartz was so involved in so many different things that the movie 
sometimes loses a bit of its focus because it's eager to tell you about like just how amazing this guy was. Yeah. And it's so, so it's like, wow, it's really impressive that he did all this stuff, but also it feels like there's a story in motion here that you're kind of abandoning from time to time to go. And like, I mean, Aaron Swartz was, um, uh, like he was elemental. One of the major forces in stopping Sopa and Pippa. You remember those, uh, the stop online piracy act. Oh, yes, prevent yes. Internet. Oh, piracy that's right. Act. Yes. Um, and th- like that is, that's a fantastic story about this, this bill that had so much support going in mm-hmm. and through, um, the work of people like Aaron Swartz and, um, and then people, you know, who, the people who ran, run Wikipedia and Google and all those, um, through the work of them, the Congress, Congress changed, like turned around on it. Like yeah. you don't see this kind of switching on a bill, you know, and like, and that would be a great movie on its own. Yeah. Here, it's almost like it's a bit of a tangent because we're talking about this other thing. Yeah. Um, which is the main – the other thing is that he did something that caused the government to seek to prosecute him and he ended up committing suicide. Right. Um, you know, the, you know, theoretically based on the pressure – because of the pressure yeah. and because of the idea of facing up to 35 years in jail, which is crazy – uh, I'm not a big believer in our penal penal system as it exists. I don't think we should be using it as punishment. I think it's better for our identities and also probably better for the nation in the long run if we were to focus more on rehabilitation than punishment. I agree um, to a certain extent, but part of me does wonder if it's like from a – it's hard to know how many people are deterred from doing things – because it is a punishment or a consequence. Right. Like, yeah. That, that's, that's, it is, it's a good point that it's hard to know that. I mean, I don't think there's a lot of research to show that deterrence like this, like the death penalty do work, but yeah. there's not, but it, yeah, it's hard to prove a negative. Um, but that's not really the point. I, I'm, I'm getting off on a tangent because I have a lot of hangups about prisoners rights. I think it's, mm-hmm. I think it's bad for the country that prisoners are disenfranchised. I think, or, or felons are disenfranchised. I, I yeah. think, um well I mean what's the what's the motivation to to turn around? What's the motivation to be a contributing member of society if once you are convicted of a felon felony, you're essentially cast out of our society? And then there's also the fact that counties that have prisons in them get to use the prison population toward their representation in Congress, even though those prisoners can't vote. That seems I wrong. I didn't know that. Yeah, That's interesting. That that seems that that seems very wrong to me. We're so off topic. That this isn't what this movie is about. But it is absurd to me that he was facing thirty five years in prison for what he did. And here's what he did, which was illegal. Um, uh, and this is why the movie would be a great uh, companion piece to Citizen Four. It's not as good as Citizen Four, okay. um, but it's very good. So there are. On uh, uh, there, there are companies that essentially own all of the academic research that's done. Like, uh, you know, professors and stuff write these papers, scientists write these papers, and the, the last step is they get put into these archives that uh, anyone can access for mm-hmm. a cost. The companies that run these things, they're not paying anything. They're not paying for for the these papers, for this research. Okay. It just gets put in these archives, and then they... Uh, sell it to people, and the only, way, so the only way you can get it is to pay 
which uh, and pay handsomely as the movie shows. Um, or you can, if you are a student or a faculty at a university that has a, an account. Mm-hmm. Um, and Aaron Swartz's position was, um, this isn't fair, and it's also not helpful to people who can't afford it. You know, the 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 person who could use this research to do great great things yeah. might not be able to afford it, or might not even might not be able to afford college or might not even be in a part of the world. You know, you, this could be, yeah. uh, he was big on getting this sort of information to the developing world. Almost, and so, almost the idea of like this, this belongs, this is for posterity at this point. Like when it's research and stuff, it's something that we all have a right to. Uh, yeah. And like it's, also, it's not like, uh, unlike what, um, what, uh, Edward Snowden did. These aren't, no one's considering these secrets. No one's trying yeah. to keep these secret. They just want you to pay for them. Yeah. Uh, and so what he did is he set up a fake account at MIT, um, went into like a a server closet, hooked up a laptop with an external hard drive, and just started downloading huge, huge amounts of stuff. Hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, that that was against the law what he did. Yeah, but um, the movie makes the case that the ferocity of the prosecution was uh, not in. Uh, was out of proportion. It was disproportionate. Was it like to maybe like make an example That's of them? That's exactly what they said. Okay. That's exactly what they said. Um, and, but even after like the company that, uh, one of the company that owned the stuff that he was stealing from, not, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that you had to pay for, even they dropped the charges. They're like, Hey, we got, you know, we got the files. He doesn't have them anymore. Interesting. We don't care anymore. MIT stayed out of it completely. No. And it just became about, um, uh, yeah, making an example, um, and, and I think that's where it really fits in with Citizen Four and the um, the way that the Obama administration has uh, targeted people like this. You know, I don't know if what Aaron Schwartz does would be considered whistleblowing. It's not, but right. it's the that same side, that same type of like freedom of information thing. Yeah. Uh, seems to be something that, and we talked about when we talked about Citizen Four. The Obama <laughs> President Obama said he was going to run the most transparent administration in history, and it's been the exact opposite. Yeah, uh, like I mean, not just uh, like actively pursuing being the exact opposite of that. Yeah, it's very very frustrating. Um, and I th- would hope not to be too inflammatory here, but I would hope that uh, if President Obama gets to see this movie, he feels a little bit of guilt for what Aaron Schwartz did to himself um, as an indirect uh, result of what the Obama administration did to him. Having not seen the film, you know what, it, what his story actually kind of reminds me of in a way is uh, Lenny Bruce. Okay. Um, the idea that like he was just doing this thing and then suddenly finds himself sort of on the wrong side of a law that he thinks is dumb and then – does the thing that he thinks it's like, no, this, that's not how this should be. So I'm just going to do what I do. And then they just kept arrest. They kept arresting him. They kept hitting him with fines and all that. He just, and eventually Mm -hmm. he officially, he didn't kill himself, but he was, he OD'd on drugs. And so it's, it's arguable that he was acting so self-destructively that it might as well have been that, um, it was, it was probably in direct response to what was happening to him. Right. Yeah. I I don't know. I mean, but the movie is not, uh, I mean, it is infuriating, but it's not pure propaganda either, because it does 
uh, and I'm realizing this now as as I'm saying it. This is why I love that we do these because sometimes I find new things about movies by talking about them. Okay. Um, I referred to the Sopa and Pippa thing as a tangent, but now I'm realizing how it how it plays in because the movie starts with a quote from Thoreau, which is uh, I'm paraphrasing. I don't like mm-hmm. I haven't memorized my Henry David Thoreau, but um, if there are laws that are unjust, do we? obey them because they're unjust do we work to overturn them and obey them in the meantime or do we transgress start transgressing them immediately yeah and so i think this open and pippa thing even though that wasn't a law yet so it's not a perfect comparison but he, aaron swartz worked within the system yeah you know within democracy to get that overturned and he you know, didn't do that with this other thing. And so the movie does actually, now I'm realizing that I like it a little more than I did because, uh, it actually does. Um, it is a little more, um, contemplative than I realized at first. Mm -hmm. What's next for you? Next for me is the extended edition of dances with wolves. Um, which I, I have never seen the four hour. Yes. Dances with wolves. It is in my opinion, infinitely better. Than the three hour, yes. I haven't seen the the original in so long that I'm not sure I would really even yeah I get it. I watched it um, because uh, you know we covered the best pictures over it more than one lesson and uh, it was time to cover that and so um, and I hadn't seen it in a super long time. I had a fairly good memory for it, Um, but Jen, I watched it with her and she had actually seen the original many many times and so she was actually able to point out the stuff that was new and the stuff that was new. Boy, it sure helped because dance. And by the way, I won't spend a lot of time on this because we did record a 38 up, uh, minute episode about oh, okay. it. So you can find that at more than one lesson.com. But, um, and this actually, there's, I found myself thinking about this and wanting to do an episode about it that, like, almost any movie where two cultures are not even clashing, but just mixing. I feel like at this point, we have so many negative designations for the choices that filmmakers make, whether it be the magical black man or the white savior or the noble savage. Basically, I find myself wondering, is there ever a way to portray one culture, not even better, but just good, like a a white person going into a culture they don't know much about and they find value in that culture uh, and and the culture could be viewed as, quote unquote, simpler. Um, and then people say like, oh, that's just the noble savage film. And don't get me wrong. I have no patience for that. I don't like Avatar for that reason. Well, yeah, but if you're, if you're portraying it as simpler, that's where you're. But I mean, at the same time, like no one has ever said Lawrence of Arabia is that. Right. But that's, he's going into a more, not even simpler, but uh, maybe a bit more primitive as far as technology and, and that right, sort but of that, thing. That's, I think by seeing it as simpler and more primitive, that primitive, that's a, that's a perspective. And I think the movie chooses. I think Lawrence Arabia chooses not to show it that way. To you know, like it, I mean, certainly if you're looking at the timeline of like industrial mm-hmm. revolution and stuff, like right. there are quote unquote advances that one society has made that the other hasn't. But Lawrence Arabia just portrays them as different. I think. Yeah, I think maybe that's the brilliance of that film is that he and, never he never views all of them as one people. Yeah. He views them as individual characters. Whereas I, like I Pocahontas and, and an avatar and that kind of thing do a different thing. The other way to do it, even this isn't a perfect comparison, but a white, a, a, a privileged white person going into another, um, uh, setting, um, orange is the new black. Hmm. 
has done it essentially from what I understand. I've only seen um, one episode of the show. Yeah. But from what I understand, it's done it by essentially using this white character as our way into the world and then making her a minor character. Yeah, which uh, is I think I think that might be honestly the key to how to do it. Uh, yeah. Which is from what I I haven't watched it because I've heard that it's not good, but speaking of Netflix shows, Marco Polo, mm. from what I understand, is essentially doing the same thing where it's like, this is about Marco Polo, but yeah. by like episode three or four, it's really about Kublai Khan. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, I've heard that it's not actually that interesting of a show. Marco Polo? Yeah. Yeah. Um, That's what I but yeah, and so uh, so it, it just got me thinking that like, there is a way to do it, but I think it's so easy to just say, well, these people have it figured out and we don't. Or we have it figured out and they don't and we need to save them. Right. Now, Dances with Wolves has been called a noble savage film mm -hmm. and a white savior film. I don't think it was ever a white savior film because he doesn't save them from yeah, anything. I don't see it as a white um, savior film, but it's been, again, it's been a long time. It The theatrical cut is a little bit of the noble savage film, but there is stuff that is involved in the four hour cut that does not that takes away some of the nobility and makes them more makes the 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 Sioux tribe that he's a part of they're a little bit flawed and they're, and they're not viewed as primitive mm -hmm. they're viewed as simply uh just a different group of people but just as capable as horrible things as you know the white man and stuff like that and it's actually it's it's worth watching it's uh, it's, it's very good it's a very good movie and a lot of people give Dances with Wolves shit because it beat Goodfellas. That's usually the big crime. But it's huh. not the English patient. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, uh, it's actually a movie that, especially this four-hour cut, I would highly recommend watching it. I might do that. All right, moving on. Another documentary for me. Now, Tyler, you know, I, I'm usually uh, against saying, oh, you have to see this movie. I, okay. I hate that. Yes, yes. But I'm telling you that you, Tyler Smith have to see the overnighters and you have to do a more than one lesson about it. Okay. You absolutely must. I don't know if you, do you know what this is about? I don't, but a few people have been, I've been getting some, some BP's submissions from, uh, from our, uh, contributors. Yeah. And, uh, it has popped up and I know nothing about it. So here's what it's about. There's a, a the, it's a documentary about there, there was an oil boom in North Dakota. Okay. And, uh, because of fracking, there were in these small towns suddenly, more jobs than you can count that were ready to be had. Mm -hmm. um, so much so that rent in Williston, North Dakota is higher than it is here in Los Angeles. Huh. Um, and that's funny, but what it means is that men are coming from all over, not only, uh, not only all over the country, but in some cases other parts of the world, men yeah. who need work uh, uh, are coming and sometimes they can't find work. Yeah. And sometimes even if they can, they can't find a place to stay. Hmm. Um, and so this Lutheran pastor okay. started a program at his church called the overnighters where he basically turned his, you know, parts of the, not, not the actual, um, you know, church. I'm not sure what you call that. Sanctuary. Uh, yeah. Not the sanctuary and not other parts that are used for other things, but, um, he turned it into a place for people to stay oh, nice. and inclu including the parking lot. Well, you, yeah, that's your reaction. Oh, nice. The neighborhood and even his congregation did not feel that way. In ah. fact, he lost large parts of his congregation or other people tried to, you know, overturn him and people who are on the, I don't know how Lutheran churches were, but people who were like on like a council. Um, 
and so it's basically about this guy doing something that he he believes is right and is so committed to and also fighting the fact that people are fighting him uh and i mean you're angry now but you'll be blown away by the movie because it it goes you know i i talked about the rover earlier having more of a reveal than a twist i will say even though it's a documentary the overnighters has a twist but it it it's it the the twist is such a like it makes everything you've seen and felt hit so much harder once you learn um the end of this guy's story uh it's an unbelievable movie and well, yeah, oh I, you you have to see it, and I would love to. I would uh, I would listen to the hell out of a more than one lesson episode about it. That's the idea. <laughs> um, but even to the like ah, I, this I, guy that sounds great, he, but I I I anticipate being so <laughs> frustrated by it. Uh, yeah, but but, but I the, guess that's the idea. This guy is so committed to what he's doing that when he finds out that um one of the men staying at the church. Um, is a registered sex offender, and hmm. no, he knows that will upset the the neighborhood even more. Yeah, he moves him into his house. He has this registered sex offender sleeping in his basement. Um, it's it, this guy's fascinating, and I'm like, uh, I'm so on his side. But uh, you have to watch the movie. Well, are the, the people that you know? Not that I'm in. Not that I want to defend the neighborhood or the congregation or whatever. But like, um, are these people like undesirable, or is it just that? Well, hey, we don't. That's not why what this church is meant to be. Um, I think. I mean, it's obviously, some, that guy is not. Uh, people aren't thrilled to have a, sec, a registered sex offender, right? There, but and like, there are the you know there were things. It wasn't any of the people staying at his church, but there were two men who came to North Dakota who ended up raping and murdering uh, a woman. Okay, um, and so there is a generally a culture of fear, and yeah, a lot of these guys are coming because they're desperate for work because they can't find work elsewhere because they have. A past. But yeah. Yeah. Um, so, the, but they're, you know, these are people who aren't, they're not coming to scam anyone. They're coming yeah. looking for honest work. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there is a certain element of, uh, uh, of that. But, um, uh, that's fascinating. I don't know. Um, it reminds me, I keep going back to the movie Calvary, um, which I still haven't seen, Which, but I believe it just came out on Blu-ray, you, so it's, you have it's to a see, priority. Uh, you have to see that one too. Maybe it would be maybe it would be a companion film here because there's a line in Calvary where he, the priest says, um, "I think the, I'm paraphrasing. I don't remember." He says, um, "I think there's too much talk about sin and not enough talk about virtues." And the person he's talking to says, uh, "Like what?" And he says, "Well, I think forgiveness is underrated for a start," um, and I think mm-hmm. that would really apply to to certain people who are depicted in the overnighters. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Oh boy. That sounds great. I, I had no idea that was, that's what it was about. Okay. The next one on my list and we've already talked about it. Uh, so we don't have to spend a lot of time is, uh, unbroken. Um, <clears throat> which I, uh, we'll also be talking about it in our proper episode this week. Oh, indeed. Yes. Um, yeah. Uh, everything that you said, I completely agree with. Um, it's beautiful, of course. Roger Deakins. Um, I think... The Deeks. Oh, I don't care for that <laughs> at all. Um, but... Um, now, and you haven't watched American Horror Story, right? I've not, no. Um, so you were unfamiliar with the work of Finn Whitrock. 
who's yeah, I've, yeah, I but don't he's know. the other guy in the raft. Yeah, yeah, him and Dominic Gleeson and Finn Whitrock. Mm-hmm. He's great, right? Yeah, he's really good. Yeah. All three of them were. The acting, I think, is is superb well, all the way around. I, I know I'm hijacking your, but that's what I said. I said the raft part was the best part of the movie. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's still a lot in the in the camps uh, that is that is powerful. That's the thing. His life is very powerful, mm-hmm. but it doesn't stop being powerful. Again, now I'm repeating you, but like it doesn't stop being powerful the moment he's out of danger. Right. In fact, one could then say it becomes more powerful. I can't think of anything that defines the concept of being unbroken more. Speaking of, you know, forgiveness being a virtue, than going back to the people that tormented you and forgiving them. Mm-hmm. Like that, that more than anything. More Once than again, th- forgiveness. Yeah, I yeah. just said that. What's that? I just said that as you were looking at our at our mail. Oh, sorry. I referenced the forgiveness thing. Oh, okay. Um, but uh, <laughs> but yeah. So um, that's funny. A little peek behind the curtain there. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's so frustrating because like, and and you know what's and you you told me this that Universal had the rights to this story for a long time since like yeah. the the fifties. Yeah, before there and, was a book. Yeah, and that's the thing is like. Perhaps the film will be adapted again. Maybe they'll make a documentary. I could see that happening. But but this is it. After all these years, uh-huh. this is the film we get. Yeah. And there's a lot there. But that's the thing. If the film was exactly as it is, but they had another 20 minutes, maybe even 30 minutes, of him going back home, suffering from post-traumatic stress, be- becoming an alcoholic, hurting his wife becoming a Christian and going back and forgiving his tormentors as a thing he needs to do to oh, move it's like on that with his life. forgiveness thing we were talking about. <laughs> I'm not following you. Um, <laughs> like there to me, it's like, it just, it feels like, like 75% of a movie mm-hmm. and it just bothers me. And I understand because that other stuff isn't necessarily cinematic, but it's story-wise and character-wise and all these other things. It's wonderful. I feel like I don't necessarily know who the the Zamperini is. That his name? Yeah. I feel like I don't really know who he is. It's not Jack O'Connell's fault. It's not the writer's fault. Who he is or who he comes to be is what's exciting about that about him as a character. And it just like as you as I've said before, few things bother me more than a missed opportunity and. They put so much time and effort into so much about this film that they – part of me feels like how do you go this far and not take this extra step that will make this a genuinely a genuinely great and satisfying movie? As it is, I'm just frustrated by it. All right. Um, another documentary for me. Uh, I'll spend less time on this one, even though this one's getting a lot of awards attention or buzz, but, uh, finding Vivian Mayer. Okay. Yeah. It's it's just okay. Um, can you remind me who she is? Uh, well, no one knew who she was until this guy happened to buy at an auction, a crate full of negatives and find, okay. A photographer. Yeah. A photographer. And then it turned out this woman who was kind of mysterious about her past, gave different names to different employers, worked as a nanny around mostly around Chicago, but also in New York and in Minnesota. Um, but was an avid photographer who never did anything with any of her work. Mm-hmm. Um, and suddenly it was found. And then, um, so this guy, uh, John Maloof, who found it, um, develops them. So you see her, you learn about her through her photographs, but also through people, the now grown people that she was a nanny to, or mm-hmm. the now uh, elderly people that she worked for. 
Um, but I think the movie airs in a couple of ways. The smaller way is that I feel like it's kind of telling us how to, it's guiding us how to, uh, how to feel about her photography. Okay. Uh, and I'm just kind of annoyed about that, you know? Um, because it hasn't been, it's been in a lot of galleries, but it hasn't been accepted really by the like photography, like Cognoscenti or whatever. Okay. Um, and the movie keeps insisting that that's a travesty and it's like, well, maybe these people know what they're talking about. I don't know. I'm not a photography buff. Yeah, yeah. It's like, don't, you know, stick to the story you have. That's good. Quit instructing me how to feel. Right. But the more problematic thing actually is that the movie seems to be, want to reassure itself that it's doing the right thing by making these photographs public, something Mm. that she went out of her way not to do for decades. Yeah. Um, And, you know, multiple people interviewed her saying like, she would hate this, (laughs) you know? Yeah. But it's, it's, it's presented in like a, Oh, she was just a real grump. Like she wouldn't like this, but Mm. part of, but it's like, uh, but then at one point he finds this letter that she wrote to, um, uh, of, a photo company in that she knew in the small town in Paris in, in, in France um, where her, she had relatives and she'd visited mm-hmm. there and became friends and had some, ha- actually had some photos uh, printed up there and made okay. into postcards. And so she had written a letter um, uh, inquiring about like, I would like you to, to print some of my work and here are the specifications and stuff like that. And so to the movie, that's like, to the director, that's it's like the eureka moment. Like, okay, she did want to get her work out there. <laughs> yeah, okay, it's like, yeah. it's like, well, a she never sent the letter. Yeah, <laughs> she might have had second thoughts, and just based on the fact that she's clearly a pack rat or a hoarder, yeah. she didn't throw it away. There's, they never addressed the fact that she never sent this letter. And also, just because she wanted some photos printed up, it doesn't mean she was going to make them public, and it doesn't mean she wanted everything printed up. And so, if you're feeling a little guilty about what you're doing, um it's kind of disingenuous for you to be forcing down our throats, your self justifications for it, the whole movie. Anyway, uh, those are the problems I had with the movie and they, they overshadowed the good things about the movie for me. That's interesting. That's interesting. Um, so is it a film that you think I should watch or, or do you think it's not really worth it? Okay. I would look up her photos. I think they're good. Okay. All right. But, but but even by looking at them, you're, uh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. So you know what? Let's just all ignore her. I think that's the key. That's apparently what she would have wanted. Okay. Um, um, anyway, anything more for you? Yes, I've got two more. Oh, I only have one more. I thought I had more than you, but I guess I I front-loaded too many of them. Indeed. Okay. Okay, next. Uh, so I watched Dancers with Wolves because I needed to talk about it for more than one lesson. I also watched Driving Miss Daisy. Which um, I have never seen. I had seen scenes from, but I realized pretty quickly that I had never seen all of it. And it is a delightful little film. It is uh, directed by Bruce Beresford, who has uh, done a lot of work, but I know him primarily as the director of Tender Mercies, which is a, admittedly a better film. But, um, you know, at this point, a lot of people kind of know it already as uh, like, oh, Jessica Tandy, you know, she's this curmudgeon and Morgan Freeman is her driver. And, you know, there's a race race relations issue and all that. But I the, think both chiefly of the movie Stay Tuned. Really? Driving over Miss Daisy. Oh, that's right. <laughs> that's honestly that's the first thing that comes to mind when I hear driving Miss Daisy. That's very interesting. I haven't <laughs> seen Stay Tuned in many years, but I rented it a lot when I was a kid. Um Oh my gosh. I guess uh, now all I want to do is watch that movie again. Um, it's not very good. <laughs> I'm sure it's not. Um 
but yeah, and so uh, I'm sorry, you've, you've uh, I've got a blast from the past. I can <laughs> I can picture my Ventura living room and all that. Anyway, um, but uh, but yeah, but it really is a nice character study. And what I like about it is that it is sort of the the you know the, sort of a civil rights in microcosm by having how these two characters interact with each other. Wonderful performances by uh, Jessica Tandy and Morgan Freeman. Um, and, and what's interesting is like, you know, we, we think of Morgan Freeman now as basically an institution mm-hmm. at the time it was 89. So he had, so that was the same year he was in glory. He had been nominated for a supporting actor for street smart. He'd been in a few things here and there, but he was not Morgan Freeman yet. Right. And this is one of the movies that made him Morgan Freeman. This movie did crazy money. Like it, it made, it's, it's so weird to think this is something that, that we actually talked about on more than one lesson. And, uh, I was recently on the sequel cast talking about Alien, and we were talking about, like, there was a time when, like, the highest grossing movies, 1979, the year of Apocalypse Now, Star Trek The Motion Picture, and Alien, Mm -hmm. what was the number one at the box office? On Golden Pond. Kramer versus Kramer. (laughs) A different type of movie. But, like, isn't that insane? Yeah. And I don't, and certainly 89, Batman was probably number one at the box office, but Driving Miss Daisy made, like, over a hundred million dollars, which is you know huge for eighty nine. I think On Golden Pond was eighty or eighty one. Uh, it's eighty one, okay. um, and so, uh, but it's but it, you know it's a really delightful movie. I, I highly recommend it. Here's something I'll say, and I don't like saying it. There is a weak link in the film, and it is Dan Aykroyd. Okay. Despite his Oscar nomination for supporting actor. He is very much outclassed by the other two. And that's the thing. I don't think Dan Aykroyd is a bad actor, but there's just, I think maybe he didn't feel comfortable. I think he, he, it's a very self-conscious performance. I can always, I'll, I'll use a, a, a term that we've said on here before that, a, that an acting instructor of mine once said, uh, I can, I can always see the strings, the way he, you know, uh, the, the way he does his accent, which is mostly fine, but the way he puts his hands on his hips, the way he interacts with his wardrobe, um, and the world around him, it always seems like Dan Aykroyd is making the choice to do that as a character, as opposed I, to the characters doing that. I had the same. Uh, Dan Aykroyd is also the worst part of this year's Get On Up, which I saw twice and loved. Oh, I'm sure. But he's it's the same thing. Yeah, you can see him making choices. You can see him picking out what accent he's going to do. That yeah. sort of thing. And I'm, I'm trying to think because I know he played Max Sennett in Chaplin and – were I to go, and I remember thinking he was pretty good in that, but I find myself wondering, you know, another period film, I find myself wondering if I were to go back and watch that, mm-hmm. would I feel the same way? I don't know. There's just, maybe he's just, because though he's done a, a lot of acting, because he's he's not, in, he wasn't inherently an actor, uh, maybe he just felt like, okay, all right, I gotta, I gotta work really hard, I gotta make this happen, and apparently he's never really gotten out of that. So, all right, so Driving of Stacey is a very... Okay. He actually gets, although I'll say this, he gets better as the film goes on. Early on, and maybe it's because they're putting him in makeup, and maybe he feels like he can hide a little bit more. Um, it's, hard to, it's hard to say, but it's, it's interesting to, to look at that part of it. Um, my last one will only take me... It's short because it's a short movie. It's um, one of the, I guess short-listed, I'm going to say short a billion times, one of the short-listed movies for best documentary short for the Oscars. Directed by Martin Short. <laughs> no, it's um, directed by Xinjian Mu. It's a Chinese okay. um, documentary called One Child um, that is about China's one child policy, yeah. speci- very specifically in the aftermath of 
the 2008 earthquake in the Sichuan province mm-hmm. um, that killed over 5,000 children. Yeah. Um, and so it looks at basically families who lost children in this earthquake um, and their different options, which is if you lose a child, you know, under the one child policy, if you lose a child, you can have another child. Um, How very merciful of them. <laughs> yeah. Um, Sorry. Uh, you're I allowed. Should, I should say, by the way, and maybe I don't know if you agree with me or not, I think that the one child policy in China is horrendous. And I think it is monstrous. Um, I think it is maybe one of the worst things in the history of humanity. Uh, I will say this. I haven't thought about it very much. Okay. Um, but what I have thought about is the way the one child policy is affects people's choices specifically in regards to gender. Mm-hmm. Because Absolutely. Because boys are more desirable, which is, which is awful. I agree. Um, and so um, – so you see some people are allowed to have children after their child has died. And those people are – those kids are referred to – I don't know if it's officially, but everyone seems to refer to them as reborn children, which is weird. Oh, um, right. <laughs> uh, I, I feel like that that probably won't screw anybody up growing up, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but speaking of being screwed up, one of the, one of the few uh, more lighthearted parts of the movie is the first day of school for a bunch of reborn children, which hmm. you – the – the school officials are talking to the parents and saying point blank we know uh reborn children second children tend to be more spoiled <laughs> because i and so and it's true so basically they're saying they're all gonna cry just let them go and leave leave them with us don't try to come back you'll just make it worse we know how to handle them you're used to dealing with one child every day we're used to dealing with dozens just go and so the kid the parents drop off these kids and it's just i don't know if it's because i don't have kids that i find it funny maybe if i had kids i would find this heartbreaking but it's just a room full of scores of like three and four year olds just like bawling their eyes out just like that shot and gone with the wind it just the camera pulls back and it's all these crying children yeah um and i thought it, I, I have to admit i thought it was kind of funny um <laughs> One girl is literally trying to get the camera person to give her a hug. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, but anyway, it's that's the only part that I found funny. Um, uh, the other thing that happened, another person lost – they lost a child and um, this woman is, I guess, to – she's 49. I guess she can't conceive anymore. Yeah. And her husband's like 60. Um, so she wants to adopt. Her husband doesn't. Um, it costs money to adopt a kid. They don't yeah. have a lot of money. Um and so you see her going out to um, families. Like, I guess in the cities, you go to adoption agencies. In the country, families just sort of put their kids up for adoption. Because um, I guess – I'm not sure how the one-child policy works. But I, I don't know if in all cases or just in some cases, if your first child is a girl, you can have a second child. Hmm. But then a lot of people, if their second child is also a girl, they put that girl up for adoption and try yeah. again for a son. Yeah. It's crazy. Um, so she there's a sequence of this woman – driving around to these like rural communities and talking to people who are looking to get rid of their second daughters and make some money off of it. Um, and so, and she still doesn't have enough money. It's very heartbreaking, but it's, it's eye opening. Um, I almost feel like it doesn't need to be, it shouldn't be a short, it's about 40 minutes. I feel like I would have enjoyed it. I don't know if enjoyed is the right word. I would have gotten more out of it if it had been able to go more in depth. Yeah. Uh, anyway, that's one child. Hopefully maybe we'll see, uh, see it mentioned at the Oscars. Yeah, I hope so. I it's I'll say not to be cynical, but it seems like the type of movie that would be right. Uh, right. nominated. But um, okay, 
So my last film, now that we are, yeah, o- over two hours for this thing that was meant to get be a warm-up for the actual episode, which we have not yet recorded, <laughs> um, might need to take a little break. I will definitely need to take um, a break. Okay. At long last, I have seen Seven Samurai. Uh, that was the, that was like my big shame for a long time. It was the thing that showed up on, I mean, there are plenty of movies like on the sight and sound list that I haven't seen, but that one was consistently like in the top 10, uh, it shows up on the IMDb top 10 a lot. Um, it's just considered one of the best movies of all time. And though I had seen a number of Kurosawa films, uh, that one I had not seen because it is a little bit longer. Uh, it did take me a couple of days to watch it. Um, and, uh, I thought it was really great. We will be talking, by the way, we'll be talking about it more. On the proper episode. Okay. Um, well, maybe we should hold off then. Yeah. Uh, well, Seeing it's, as we've been going so long. This, well, I, there's a very specific aspect that we'll be talking about uh, in the proper episode. But uh, what I'll say is that uh, I think it's a very – I think it's a, a, a great movie. It's always – you know, it's – there are times when I worry that I won't be able to engage with a culture as different as, as you know, Japan or something like that. But what I – uh, and I remember when I first saw Rashomon and I saw, you know, Toshiro uh, Mifune uh, seeing his his acting and just feeling really taken out of it because, of course, it's a different style of acting. Um, I remember just thinking like, oh, man, I feel like I'm never going to be able to relate to these. Um, and as I get older, you just learn to kind of just roll with the punches and it's and it's fine and you get used to it. But what I of, what I often forget is that. Kurosawa was very influenced by Western filmmaking when, you know, Mm -hmm. in the films that he made. And so this really, despite being three and a half hours, it moves really fast and it just, you know, keeps everything going. Uh, I think I actually probably prefer Rashomon more. I think I actually prefer Throne of Blood more. But uh, Seven Samurai is a really great movie and I really, I'm very happy I saw it. Have you seen it? I've never seen it, no. I've seen a bunch of his stuff too, but I've never seen that one. Yeah, and it's just... And, you know, I still haven't seen Yojimbo, which I think I would like. And I still haven't seen Ron, which I think I would like. That one might be my favorite. Ron? Ron I do love that one. But I love Rashomon, too. I don't know. Yeah. it's And that, and I saw Hidden Fortress, which I think is great as well. Like, I just I don't know if I'm ever going to dislike a movie that he makes. Um, but, uh, oh, and incidentally. I think Ikiru is a bit overrated. Okay. I don't even know what that one is really about. I think it's a bit overly maudlin. Hmm. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, it was a, an Akira Kurosawa film festival that caused John Milius to want to go into filmmaking. And it comes back, I was going to say full circle, but... Um, not exactly. Not, yeah, half circle. All right. Uh, this has been great. Thanks. We'll get you next time. <laughs> okay.